something I've always been curious about. When I first learned, you know, just a, just enough coding stuff to be dangerous, and I learned about that idea of like coding standards or style guides. Have we talked about this before? Have we talked about uh, coding styles? I don't think so. I mean, how important is that to you? Is that something like does every is everybody on the same page where you work with like how stuff gets formatted? That people are not on the same page of how things get formatted, and the set of rules that I must toil under are terrible. Uh, but that's life. You run your own, maybe not lint, but do you, do you run something that fixes it to be the way you want and then puts it back to the way everybody else wants it? I did that for a while, but it was just too much. I just do it the way they want me to do it because that's why they pay me. That's why yeah. they pay me the big bucks. The place I used to work, the dot com I worked at, the, this just seems so weird to me. Well, because you know, white space gets removed, right? It's when you're doing cold fusion, it, there, it runs something like I don't know if lint's the right word for it, but it takes out, you know, it optimized. Back in, it used to really matter to optimize the space and you know, take out the lines and everything. So when it like spit it out onto the server, it would take out. So people would were just totally nuts about white space. They would add so much white space. One that I never got into too much. I was into it for a while, but they would put the attributes for like, like you say you got something like in HTML, I haven't done this in years, but a head style or a body style. And you've got anything in there where it's got, you know, attributes like a, you know, width or height or whatever. They put it on a new line and then align it all to the first word of the attribute. Does that make sense to you? That's a terrible way to do things, but I've seen that. I've seen all manner of things. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attributes against the left margin off the shoulder of a Oh, Ryan. Ryan. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> oh, tears and rain, man. Tears and yeah, rain. All these things are lost. Like cap- all, all caps, uh, tag element names in HTML, all these things are lost. Yeah, well, people rain. people get away. They get away of doing things. And it's sort of like we talked about with jargon, where that kind of thing just starts to seem normal because everybody else does it that way. All things, all these things will be lost, are lost, will be. I think. Will I think be. it's it's all I remember is it's tears in rain, not tears in the rain. And I'm I know forever, that part. I know forever that having part. to correct Dan Morin about that. All these moments are lost or will be lost. Well, now we need to look it up. It's really right. annoying. Me. I'm on it. I'm on it. My mic got louder. Oh, tears in rain monologue. It has its own page. Perfect. I will copy this in <laughs> of markdown. Of course, it has its own page. Tears in rain monologue. All these moments will be lost in time. There we go. I was I was honing in on it. I was narrowing it down. I got the moments. Didn't just, get the verb tense. Did you see the top? C beam. C beam redirects here for <laughs> steel beams with a C shaped cross section. C structural. They should yeah. have like. Do they have like S E A beam and S E E beam for all like the the misspellings? Oh, I you know I, it's it's fun to see what they do sometimes. Is there a way to see what the redirects are? Anyway, yeah, and supposedly he improvised this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This was a reshoot. This whole thing. That's why, like, the lighting is all weird. Is that right? Yeah. Like, they were done, it was, like, second unit or something? Like, they were done with the primary? I I think they didn't, they either didn't have this or didn't like what they had, and so they, like, slapped together something to, to, uh, you know, it was in one of the the making ofs on, like, the Final Cut type video or whatever, that this was, like, uh, a pickup or whatever. I remember still, I don't know, I love the way the rain looks in this, the, like, slow motion look of the rain in this. Yep. And the bird. Oh, man. I mean, it's got a little bit of the seven angle where the whole movie, it's dark and rainy until the end when the sun finally kind of comes up on the roof of this building. Yeah. Okay. So when you get into languages, isn't Python the one famously where things like indentation absolutely mean something? Like, you, is it really just kind of only one way to format Python, right? 
Uh, not really, but what they did was they got rid of the curlies. Like, so you have to have things that delimit, like, you know, you have a conditional, and then, you know, if this condition is true, then do all this stuff. And it's like, what stuff? How do I know what stuff uh, I do if this conditional is true? And in most languages, you have some kind of beginning and ending token. Either it's an open curly brace and a closed curly brace, or, or like a then and then an end, or an end if, or, you know, right. a begin and end. Some, some sort of text on the screen that, that delimits blocks. Uh, uh, you know, uh, scope, a, a block scope type uh, thing. And Python, the innovation is we're not going to have begin, end, if, end, if, anything like that. We're not going to have open curly, close curly, since programmers all indent the blocks to uh, identify a scope. In Python, the indenting will define the scopes. So that means you have to indent, because if you don't, you haven't actually defined a scope. It must drive people crazy when they first use it. No, nah, I mean, I think it's like... Seriously, no no programmers are, as far as I know, no working programmers are, I'm just going to push everything against the left margin. I'm not going to indent anything because you go crazy. It's like impossible to do anything. So everyone has some indenting style. Mm-hmm. And I think every real working programmer is used to adapting to other people's indentation styles because you don't get to pick your own. I mean, it must, but, but it must seem bananas. Like some people want to put like the, the trailing, whatever the, as you say, the token is, whether it's a, you know, the the closing the closing tag or whatever it is people get really specific about whether they want that on the same line or a new line should you only see the opening you know what i mean should you be able to scan to just find the opening part of the tag and i i've seen some people with some pretty outlandish approaches to that yeah but but these days like even if you are wild west i program what i want in my free time try contributing to an open source project they all have a style and they're not going to submit accept your patches if you don't conform to their style so there's you always have to you know unless you're starting your own project and you get to define your own style and then even even then if your style is too weird people won't want to contribute because it's too weird so uh, getting used to just uh you know adapting to someone else's style it's like being a musician you know you may you you may decide to like write a particular piece of music or do a solo in a particular way but when you're in a band you got to go with what the band is if everyone else in the band is playing classic rock and you want to play slow jazz it's not going to work an even better example might be screenwriting and script formatting which is you know incredibly specific oh well that's 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 the worst because there's like only one style and it's a really dumb style what do you think is dumb about it it's just archaic like everything about the style there's a reason for it. It's cutting the ends off the roast. There's a reason for it hmm? that was so long ago that not only are all the reasons for it gone, but no one even remembers what the hell they are. And now you just do it because everyone else does it. Cutting the ends off the roast? Yeah, you know that one, right? No. It's the, like the, I don't know. It's a good way to tell the story, but I'll just cut to the punchline and kill the story. Like uh, someone is cutting the ends off the roast because, you know, it tastes better that way. And this person doesn't know why he's doing it so he asks his mother hey mom why do we cut the ends off the roast and the mom says i don't know and asks the grandmother and the grandmother says oh because uh, the roasting pan i had was too small for the roast so i always had to cut the ends off uh. and it just got passed on and on and at a certain point the roasting pan is plenty big but people keep cutting the ends off because i think that's the way you make a roast and no one even remembers anymore that is a fantastic john syracuse story that is not well told but you can uh, no but it's right you up can, your alley yeah you can tell that the right way and make it sound charming but the bottom line is like or it's if you want to do the one that you have heard a million times it's the the monkeys getting sprayed with the hose that thing it's the same story <laughs> like eventually all the monkey keep replacing the monkeys and eventually no one even knows why you don't touch the banana 
Uh, but they will all beat the hell out of the other monkey to say, don't touch the banana. This, if you don't know the story, this sounds crazy right now, but I'm sure. Marlon okay, but here's, here's the, the thing. I, I like this. I like the idea of this, this persona of yours. I think you should be on maybe like, <laughs> no, like maybe. No. It's like, like Phil and Lisa ruin the movies, genre and stories. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I think you should be on Prairie Home Companion. Yes. And yes. And, yes, and. how long do we have to go? Through? Yes. And I think you should be on Prairie Home Companion. And you could come out and, you know, it's just, it's like a fun NPR. It's the programming guy who never learned how to tell a joke. I like the, uh, well, the thing is, I don't remember the stories and I don't, I don't. That's part of the bit. That's what makes it funny. Well, but see, I would rather be on the show that takes a story and tells you what real life psychology experiment it is the same as. (laughs) One, what horrifying real life psychology slash animal torture experiment is the same as this joke. Oh, okay. Because the cutting the ends off the rose is basically that monkey's thing. Sure. Stand back, Eve. I don't know how big this thing gets. That's I don't know if there's a psychology experiment. There probably is. Freud probably had one. Yeah, probably. Sometimes a joke is just a joke. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes a monkey is not a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, down home country country uh, humor of uh, John Syracuse. Anyway, anyway, you know what I mean. It sounds like a monkey getting hosed about a banana. Anyway, yeah, you know what, what is that one? Do you remember the? I don't the, remember that at all. The monkeys thing. You totally remember the monkeys thing. What are you talking about? I heard it from you like five times. Monkey with a hose? Yeah. So you've got, I think I know this one well enough to more or less walk through it. And it's not a joke. It's a, an experiment. You, you've got like a banana or some desirable food uh, and a bunch of monkeys in a cage. And a monkey goes over and grabs the banana. And every time a monkey grabs a banana, someone outside the cage hoses them down with a fire hose. Mm-hmm. Right? And eventually the monkeys in the cage learn, don't touch the banana. So then you take one of the monkeys out of the cage and you put a new monkey in. New monkey goes in the cage and goes, oh, this is awesome, a banana. It goes over to get the banana and every other monkey in the cage is like, no, don't touch the banana because we're all going to get hosed. And they, the other monkeys in the cage stop that monkey from getting the banana, right? Uh, that's a great story. And then you take one more monkey out and put a new monkey in. New monkey comes in, sees a banana, goes to get the banana. And all the monkeys are like, no, if you get the banana, we all get the hose. Keep replacing the monkeys until eventually you have a cage full of monkeys None of whom have ever been sprayed with the hose, all of whom will attack any other monkey that goes for the banana. <laughs> Don't touch the banana. They're, they're going to hit us with a roasting pan. Yeah. Well, wow, no, that's, like, a, that's amazing. That's, that's you, about culture. It's about culture. Have, haven't you heard that story? Haven't you told that story on like Back to Work five times? You ever heard the one about the three-legged pig? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've heard that one. <sighs> Metaphors we live by. Anyway, I don't know if that's a real experiment, but I, I heard it told as a real th- conditioning experiment they did with animals to uh, to prove a point or because uh, scientists are sadistic. There's so many turns out stories like that, you know, like the hundredth monkey. You remember that one and something, something, you threw your clams off the cliff and then everybody figures out how to do it. I do not know the hundredth monkey. Oh, it's it's one of those like, you know, be the change things where it's like it takes a hundred monkeys to like figure out how to do something. It's probably evolution or as you say, adaptation, but it basically involves like at some point there were enough monkeys who figured out that you could, again with the monkeys, uh, enough monkeys figured out that you could throw your clams off the side of a cliff and they would break open. I think that only takes one monkey. Hell, the, the, the birds figured that out. Mm-hmm. Or you got, you remember when we were kids, at least when I was a kid, they used to tell us that uh, the thing that separated us from the animals was the use of tools. And now we've got all these mm. examples of uh, animals using tools. Like, yeah, I don't, even when we were kids, they had examples. Of, Monkey with the ant stick, you know? Yep, sure. And yeah, and like I said, the birds dropping the, uh, the breakable things onto rocks and then going down to pick them up once they're cracked open. Or the way you wait for somebody's insurance money to come in before you rob them again. Exactly, so many yeah. examples in the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Learn a lot about love. Um, hmm. How's your holiday season? You doing all right? Doing pretty good. Roasting yeah. pan is plenty big. <laughs> Cutting the ends off. 
But really, that's the that's the same story as the monkey story. Like the the it is just told in a different way. That eventually you have people doing something and they don't understand why. And you have monkeys and you have people. And I I think one is like a uh, a Jewish folk tale, and the other one, like I said, is an actual real animal conditioning experiment. Where they get the hose? As far as you know. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I tell the one at home a lot when I'm when I'm trying to find a, a way to explain like some kind of poor, you know, uh, causal relationship, and I do the one about the guy who's chasing away the alligators. I like that one too. The guy who's the alligator hired, in the bathroom. That one alligator in the bathroom. Uh, yeah, it's an English beat song. No, no, it's that idea that like uh, you, you see that guy. Uh, you know the joke. <laughs> the guy, the guy sitting around with the uh, with the shotgun at whatever insert uh, place White House. He's at the White House, not the White House with a shotgun. He's at a mall. He's at a mall and, and he's got a trident. We'll say that. And, and so he says, "Hey, what are you doing, dude? Well, like, why do you have a trident at the mall?" And he's like, "I'm scaring away the alligator." He says, "There's never been alligators in here." And he goes, "See, that's uh, the Simpsons gag with the uh, tiger and the rock. Tiger and the rock." Yeah, uh, Lisa's Lisa's got a rock, and she's trying to teach Homer a lesson. She, she says, Dad, uh, I might as well say that this rock keeps away tigers. And, and Homer says, that's ridiculous, Lisa. And Lisa says, you don't see any tigers, do you? And then Homer says, Lisa, I'd like to buy that rock. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch last week's? Simpsons? No, I haven't watched in years. Oh, my goodness. It was a parody of uh, Boyhood, and it was, uh, it was a little too warm for my liking. It was very, it was very warm. I haven't seen Boyhood. I've got it available to watch, but I, I watched about watched the first it. half of it. It's pretty good. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. Yay. But we need to get to that. You, yes, uh, and? Yes, and. Oh, I didn't go to improv school. I don't I'm not constrained oh, by, I did. The, I, by oh, the bounds of yeah, I did four of yes years at improv school. Oh, I went, all, went to all the finest improv schools of Cincinnati, Ohio. Right, I know, but I didn't, so I don't have to yes and. I, I can say no but. <laughs> what do you imagine? What do you imagine I've been trained in? I, well, eventually, like all the students in the improv thing are saying yes and. None of them yes know and? why. No, uh-huh. None of them know why. None of them have actually ever had the hose. Okay. But they all understand that the answer is yes and. Anyway. Okay, I'm going to need the suggestion. Some kind of a cooking implement that you might need to cut up the ends of a roast off for. And an occupation and scene. And a hose, yeah. And a hose and a monkey. You got the Jewish guy over here. You got some desirable food. So a movie, a movie that you were supposed to watch a long time ago, my favorite David Fincher movie big that you week, watched big the, week, John, big the, week. the first half of for some inexplicable reason and for a long time didn't watch the rest of, maybe just for the gag. Uh, it's hard to tell sometimes with you, uh, but then eventually you did it. You you did it. You we recorded we recorded a, a wonderful episode uh, last week in our time, but two weeks ago in your time, listeners. And uh, <clears throat> after the dream episode, for some, for some reason I went home and it was like ten o'clock. I don't know. I don't know why do I do this. And I was like, you know what? I should totally watch the game. And you know what I did? You know what I did? I watched it from the beginning all the way through in a sitting with Bluetooth headphones on. I just sat there and watched it. See, I almost want to ask why it occurred to you then, but actually I don't want to ask because I don't, I don't want to dis- – it's almost as if you might go back in time and unwatch it if I ask that. So I don't, we don't want to discuss that and I just want to Yes, and. About- yes, and. We cracked about it. We cracked wise about it on the program as we do because it's, it's, it's a bit – yes, and. And mm-hmm. so for some reason I just went home and I was like, you know what? I, I think I'm going to watch this. And I and I and it was really dumb because the whole point of the exercise was to watch it all the way through, right? Uh, and you started at ten, yeah, which is stupid. Um, but I I I really enjoyed it, and it's a, it's one of those. It's funny though because maybe it came up because last time we were talking about magic realism, magically real things, movies like Synecdoche, New York, and you know mind f movies, kind of right. Maybe yep. that's what made me. Maybe it came up last week. I don't remember, but. But it was in the context of it really got me thinking about like uh, those kinds of movies we were talking about that we enjoy, you know, that are, you know, how much do you know? How much is real? What's really going on? How does it matter to the plot? And I thought this did it pretty well. And and 
I guess my point being, yes, and my point being that like uh, a movie like that done well, even if and when you see it coming, you still don't really exactly see it coming because it's never quite what you expected. Yeah, I want. I'm going to spoil this now. So if anyone's listening, sorry, oh, yes. we'll see you again. Please, if anyone yeah. is listening, just like we did with the Fury Road, people complain about it. People said that I got up to the point where they said, "Stop listening if you haven't seen Fury Road," and I haven't continued watching uh, listening to the podcast. Uh, we'll confine it to the show. Uh, so only stop this episode. You can listen to the next episode. But anyway, stop this episode and go watch the game because it's an awesome movie and I'm about to spoil the whole freaking you movie. You spoiled Fury so Road, John. I, I mean, I knew that a, that a truck drove into the desert, but I didn't know it. Yeah, no, you, you did it again. See, now you're just you're just making people angry. You have to believe that. Anyway, I'm about to spoil the game because I want to talk about it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you totally should. It is my favorite David Fincher movie. It is an excellent movie overall. Um especially if you like David Fincher movies, because this is super Finchery. All right, so the the thing about the game, and I talked about spoilers and all these other things, is, uh, and before that, you had mentioned, like, oh, if, a, if a movie is well-constructed, even if you see it coming, it's still satisfying. Yes, totally. This movie got me, like, the mood of it sucked me in enough uh, that I was totally, I was on board with this movie completely. And towards the end of the movie, when the climactic scene comes... And our star, Michael Douglas, uh, does something dramatic at the top of a building. This is the scene. Oh, okay. The scene on the roof with his brother. Right. Yeah. Right. I was ready to accept that he was a goner, right? Because this movie, if they had made that creative choice, it leads to that point pretty well. Because it's a pretty dark and depressing movie. And And you know he's obsessed with his father's suicide. And you know, like, there's this game that seems like it's real, but it's really not. Um but you could have constructed this movie to lead to a point where it does go too far and he is too distraught. Right. And he happens to be in a situation that the people running the game didn't quite know that, you know, that he was had this hung up. Because remember all these things about his father in his head or whatever and, and have him take a header off and have oh, him be like, was, oh, that was so effective. I thought that was so, so effective. We've gone too far. Like, And if the yeah. movie had ended that way, like if it ended with him dead, like it would have been totally in keeping with the tone of the movie, with like the message of the movie and everything about it. And so at that point, this so rarely happens to me. So rarely happens that I'm fooled by a movie. But I, you know, at every point in the movie, you're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. But at that point, I'm like, oh, now the payoff is going to be that actually it does go for, too it far. Deeper, because yeah. because you, the viewer, have been trained for the whole rest of the movie to be like, oh, I bet this is part of the game. Oh, I bet oh this yeah, is part I'm of the sorry. Game. Yes. So you're saying like, this is actually the, this is the end of it. This is right. This that is he, the, that, yeah. that he, it, it, the game goes too far and he's not able to handle it because he is much more fragile than they think he is. And so this final scene plays out and it like, it has finally convinced me that, this actually isn't part of the game and he is and you see you know he's going to do it he's on top of the building he is going to kill himself right he's at the end of his rope right and he goes down down and they do it in slow motion they're doing so many other movies and it's a big like because oh isn't this terrible how this happened or whatever and then just this is one of my favorite i've mentioned this before when we talked about one of my favorite shots in any movie ever is him going down onto that airbag and landing dead center in the middle of the x and that's the moment where the movie goes we have your number character played by Michael Douglas, Nicholas, whatever his name is. Yeah. Not only did we know you would do this, not only did we, was this all orchestrated because like, but right dead center in the middle of the X with the whole, everyone is around in the nice evening wear at the party. Boom. Right. Yeah. And the brushing the glass away from his face and everything like that. Cause that's the only way he can come out of this. Like that, the only catharsis that can solve him is, is this one. And the only way he can, you can have essentially a happy ending, a believable, catharsis for the audience and for the main character is for him to do that and to land dead center in the middle of the x and everyone applaud and get the little shirt 
I was left for dead in the Mexican desert. Like, it's one of the most satisfying endings of a movie I've ever seen. Not just because it fooled me, because I watched it again over, you know, many times. And it, I always just find it satisfying. I find it, I find it uplifting, heartwarming, believable. And I love, I love, I wish there was, I, don't, I almost wish there were sequels. Like, because I love the right. idea of, of this, this game company that researches you to the point where they know exactly what you'll do and exactly what you need, right? And and I can orchestrate it all. I mean, it's obviously fantastical and ridiculous that it wouldn't actually work in real life, but boy, I I love it. I love I, if I could get a poster of him falling onto that X, I would. It's it's it's, like, right. it's it's my spirit animal, as they say. <laughs> when uh, when is the scene in the cafeteria in relationship to that? Uh, which scene is that? The scene where he walks through the cafeteria. This is my favorite scene. Was when he like opens, opens the doors, goes into the cafeteria, and he sees in one place all of the characters that, oh, we, yeah, yeah. that we, he and we have been seeing throughout the movie. You know, including the cops, including everybody. Like they're all it, all, it, all the working actors, right? Yeah, it was just such a perfect. I mean, there's, I don't know. And again, we're going to spoil it, so you know, get over it. But I mean, like things like there's so many moments where you're like, oh yes, like when he looks up at the screen and sees the actor you know, doing the commercial and you're like, Oh yes. Perfect. And like when, to me, like when he walks into the cafeteria, it's like, Oh God, this is what, what a payoff, you know, getting all those people in the same room like that. And it's shot in a way that it's obviously helping us to savor what a great moment this is, but I got a feeling I could slow that thing down and see a lot of stuff I didn't notice on the first watch, which I love in a movie. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't too in your face. It wasn't like, don't you remember this person from this thing? Like, but they were all in little groups, like, you know, relaxed and, and hanging out. That was the moment where the, where the movie really lit up for me. Yeah. And, and so this also has the little ending that so many movies have done in the past where they, where like he, she's going to the airport for another job and he, it, like he invites her along. She invites him along like you want to come with me or whatever like to try to reignite the audience maybe the game's not quite over yet and, and on one hand i say of course it's over he got his money's worth he paid the bill he got exactly what he needed to get it's all tied up in a neat little bow mm-hmm. i like the fact that they add this question because the the only thing left after this movie is over is can you go back to a normal life thinking that you know everything that happens to you could potentially be part of this game or can you say no the game is over this is this is real life well, like, like, and having to doubt every single scintilla of information because like so like would you say like oh you know what those two guys in the club were right once you've been through the game it changes your life and you you can never really go back but guess what they were part of the game exactly right, right. so but you know and i'll just jump to straight to being that guy in some ways the movie is a lot about watching movies in some ways i think oh, I oh yeah no it's totally a movie about movies i mean the whole, the whole thing because because you've got it's a movie that has actors playing actors who are acting right many movies do that and it's it's a very fine line to like that that's why i think it works because during the whole movie in the beginning all the game employees essentially are you don't know their game employees so they have to be believable as their characters at a certain point you start to suspect their game employees and they have to play game employees acting and on the roof part you have to believe that they are game employees trying to convince nicholas that they are now out of character and saying no he's got a real gun but really they're still acting that out and so it's like multiple layers of acting going on it's very difficult to walk that line i want to watch it again now i want to watch it again oh my god that's so it's so true and they go through like, what do you, what would you even see? Like it was, it's not it's squibs like in the movies. It's very meta, obviously, but but like really, 
this is the ultimate rich person fantasy because like what do you get the guy who has everything this is right. literally the only and the perfect gift you could ever get this uh nicholas the character michael douglas plays in this movie and i love him in this movie he is perfect in this role yeah i love this character i love his bmw speeding through the gates that open in front of him i love the freaking clown i love his frustration with everything that happens then. That the was, frustration that was... of a rich white man when things <laughs> don't go his way when the pen explodes in his pocket the pen given to him by the people i love it but like you know even when he knows something's up like when the guy points out the ink at the airport you know, you're like, is that guy in on it? Like, who who all is in on it? Like, and you, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the reason I say it's like uh, like becoming part of a the audience of a movie is that we go into a film knowing that it's a film, and we go in even and in the case of like a mystery or a thriller or like a mind bender, like you're you know like a Shyamalan movie, like you go into it like okay, well, what's the thing I'm not going to notice? Or for that matter, Law and Order. It's like it's a, it's a game in every household in America to be the first person to scream out who's obviously the murderer. It's not the hardest puzzle in the world, but we all do that. So like when, when are you, I forget, are you watching Fargo? You are, yes, I, I am, but I'm one behind. Um, but like we'll be watching Fargo. This is not a spoiler, but uh, except to say, for the love of God, please watch it. Um, but we'll be sitting and we'll both be screaming out. This is a thing my wife and I've done for sixteen, fifteen years now, sixteen years, where we just suddenly will scream out what we think is going to happen next in the plot. <laughs> Right, right. Oh my God, he's he's gonna be alone. He's gonna be alone. Oh, he's there's there's nothing left in the gun. The gun's gone. <laughs> I had that moment in Fargo, but the the movie, uh, the movie, the show beat the words out of my mouth by like milliseconds. Right, so it was a scene. That's where, that is pacing, my friend. Yeah, that is pacing. It is where where our hero cop was uh, outside a building talking to the the mustachioed uh cop from the uh, the other town or whatever. Yeah, the like arrogant guy. Uh, yeah, and I forget what he was saying, and I was just about to turn my wife to say that guy's a terrible cop and then at that exact moment the, the our hero character in the show says you know what you're a shit cop <laughs> <laughs> like the exact moment i'm like that was good writing because that's exactly what the audience is thinking at that moment and it's exactly the point that the character would have reached his breaking point and say you know what let's just say it right now Right, exactly, exactly. And so when you go into a movie like that or a TV show like that, I mean, you know, that, whatever, that's a silly thing to do. Why, why, why would grownups do that? But that is part of the fun of it is like trying to – we talked about this before with, with all kinds of different movies. You're looking for that right level of stimulation with like what's expected, what's unexpected. Uh, what were we talking about in particular? Mad Max, I guess. But we were talking about like <clears throat> where your – I don't want to say comfort zone is, but like where you are most sort of stimulated – by a piece of media where, you know, or, you know, you know, I'm going off on this jag about Edgar Wright because I just love Edgar Wright. But with Edgar Wright movies, I feel like my daughter pointed something out to me today that I had never seen. She's like, look, every time they show Ramona, there's hearts in the background. I was like, you're right. They use like a like a, an effect or a lens that causes every light. You know what I'm talking about where it gets all mm-hmm. blurry? Yep. And yep. You, they're all every time they show Ramona, there's hearts in, in, in all the lights. And I was like, I totally did not see that. So, I mean, I... I treasure that. Like, if I can sit there and feel like my attention is being m- more than fully rewarded by totally paying attention to this, like, that's that's good for me. And then, so the funny part is, though, it's like, like they say, <laughs> another one of your analogies, you know, if you stare in the, mo- in the uh, mirror long enough, you see a monkey, like, you start watching a movie like this, and you become a, a paranoid. You become a paranoiac, because you're thinking that everything means everything, and you're parsing it, and you're, you know. And so you, it, might, it might be a jump scare that gets you, or it might be like a switch em up You never know what it's going to be. What, what about that ambulance? Is that real? Is that guy really dead? There's all that stuff, and, like, your brain is, like, churning on, uh, what do you say, solving from static. You're, <laughs> you're trying to see if everything in the movie is relevant. And then when they really do trick you, even though you're watching the effect very closely, it feels fantastic. Yeah, and any movie about movie making 
like it's rewarding in that way and also it's it's undecidable because say you notice like some piece of the set that wasn't configured correctly because in the movie a lot of the things are supposed to be sets hastily constructed for the purpose of this game you don't know if it's is that supposed to be an intentional error so if you were looking closely you'd realize this apartment is not an actually lived in place but it's something they just set up for these people right or is that just an actual continuity error or missing piece of the set in the movie oh, um, but, but, yeah. but some things they do decide for you and i think it's satisfying like the teddy bear guy the toy factory guy with the mustache mm-hmm. that he has to bring the bad news to or whatever he's not in on the game Right, like because he's in because he's in the 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 ballroom audience, and he's like, "Oh, we're here for his birthday." You know what I mean? Like, I know, I know. Which makes that payoff so great when he goes to have the come to Jesus meeting, and his family's there, and it's like now it's so great because Michael Douglas, who thinks what we think, now sounds crazy. Yeah, and and the the poor guy, like we got to it, a lot of it is because it's a movie, and you have you want to see Nicholas's character, like what kind of person is he when he has to deliver this bad news, and is he able? He is caring but also a little bit heartless and a little bit harsh with this guy and the guy like you know pushing him out of the company hands it like he doesn't know that's part of the game but we have to see that and we have to have him go through it so he can be changed by by this experience yeah also with the with the woman um god i'm such a i'm such a simp you know shame on me i i kept thinking Okay, now we know what's going on. Even though there's, I had no reason to actually think, oh, now I really know what's going on. So I can't even count off the top of my head. Like, there were at least two or three twists with her, right? With, with you know, with getting to another step and another step. And then wonderfully, as you were alluding to a minute ago, he goes to her house, yeah. right? Where they got the fake books and everything. Mm-hmm. That was, because at that point, I was thinking, okay, we've gotten to the bottom. The first time you watched it, didn't you think, oh, this is he's going to go confront her? And like, obviously, we've gotten to the bottom of this mystery at this point. At that point, I knew there had to be a progression because what they had established is that the people, the game company understands that he's a smart guy and you can't expect to dupe a smart guy. So you have to essentially like leave a little breadcrumb trail to lead him down the path to realize that, you know, because that's part of the game because it has to culminate in that roof where he insists that everything has to be. It all ends on that X. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they'll be like, no, he's got a real gun. Like you really, they have to bring it to that point, right? They have to make it so that he is convinced that no matter what they say, it's BS and this is not real, right? Because he needs to be essentially the, the the insistent one at that point. And the only way you bring him to that point is to bring him along by steps and have him think he's figured it out at every step and every step have him not figured out until he's conditioned to believe that no matter what I see, everything is part of the game, right. which is actually true, but but make him believe, you know, with the... Uh, anyway, yeah, it, it's, it's great. It's a really well-constructed movie because if you had just done it where you try to fake out the character in the movie for the whole time and the audience figures it out, then the movie is just dead and lifeless because the audience right. is like, you dummy, can't you tell this is the game? When really, the audience and the character are brought along. And like you said, every time you think you have it figured out, they go one more notch and one more notch. And it's, it's you know, wheels within wheels within wheels. Well, yeah, and there was, I, I don't have that, I can't fix a date to these, but I think of those movies that came out, I think around the same time, like when did Truman Show come out? Wasn't it kind of around it, this time? It was later. It? Uh, the Truman Show was later, I think. Was like, it? This is, this is uh, 1997, right? So this is pretty early. But I mean, you know, what, what were the two movies that were like that? There was the Truman Show. Um, the one the where one. everything's black and white and in color. Uh, oh, there was that one too, when they're in the TV show. But, you know, uh, but a movie like, uh, I'm trying to remember what the other one is. But part of the fun of a movie like Truman Show is when we make the leap 
from not knowing what's going on to knowing what's going on. And I don't think it's like the greatest movie in the world, but it is pretty fun when we, when we, you know, the light falls down and we start to see that, you know, there's this other world going on. I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a can't be fun popcorn movie, but part of what made this movie great is, was that constant feeling of like, ah, I can't even trust what I think I know. And when I know more, it's not going to make it any better. You know, that's the beauty of a movie like this is that new information does not make things any clearer. Yeah, and stylistically, even though it's super finchery, uh, I like the fact that this movie is small in the way that most fincher movies after this and some before were not, and that it's almost like an art house movie where they they decided a look and a feel for the whole movie, and they just do it consistently throughout. And usually, you can't do that because you got to have mm-hmm. uh, different settings, different times of day. You know, you want to have different settings. You can't have it same you the whole movie, right? Uh, and I mean, Fincher, like I said, Fincher did that kind of in seven with the big change at the end. And but for this movie, it's just very consistent. And most most directors and most movie studios don't want to make a movie like that because it's almost like a short story instead of a novel. It's like you got to have different different settings. Like we got to have establishing shots and someone has to travel across a bridge in a car and it has to be sometimes in daytime and it can't all be this kind of moody, weird lighting. It's like, nope, this, this is what I'm doing the whole movie. And enjoy. Like this is it. This is the story I want to tell. This is the mood I want to. It's like right. it's like saying in a noir movie, it's like it can't be smoking dark all the time, can it? Like, yeah, that's that's what I'm making. The whole movie is like that. Right, and I and I love it, and you know you can't even something like Aliens Three had more variety. Seven is the only other one I can think of that was just like oppressively consistent with the with the atmosphere and the mood, and like even the music is just it's just one unbroken giant string of tension from beginning to end. Yeah, but I mean, think about something like um, like Psycho, um, probably his most famous, but also certainly not his best movie, but a movie like Psycho, I mean, there's something that's very even about the tone of the movie, even when, you know, the the protagonist is driving around in a car in daylight. There's something very claustrophobic and obviously voyeuristic about the movie. There's something that, you know, it's, you know, like, uh, I watched a thing today, the Tony Zhu thing, like, what's in the frame, what's out of the frame? And the way that stuff is done, the way she looks in a rearview mirror in broad daylight, it's just as scary as driving in a rainstorm. So here's my question for you, and help me out on this, because I was falling asleep by the time we, not falling asleep, but, you know, he wakes up in Mexico. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. So what was it that happened that he got, did they drug him? Is that what yeah. it was? There's, there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, carefree drugging of our poor game victim. It's like here. the old days with the with the chloroform. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nobody he'll ever be, has a headache or a seizure or anything. He'll, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. <laughs> he'll be fine. Um, so let me ask you this. I mean, in 1990, whatever 97 or whenever you first saw it, and now I have to tell you that when he woke up and was in another country, I immediately thought, "Wow!" I I uh, I mean, I'm still enjoying the movie, but I was like, "Wow, this movie just took a big jump." Because now we've gone from okay there's a proscenium here in which, you know, these things are happening in San Francisco. Like we get that to this much bigger thing. Now we're like, Oh no, this is serious. Like this is really, really serious. And the misdirect there, I think for the smart audience is this is exactly like the, if you were to have a company that was a scam, right? Like you, you get rich victims and you cart them off to Mexico and take all their assets and their money. Then then you're thinking like, cause you're you're thinking like the game company obviously is a fantastical thing that doesn't exist and couldn't exist. So you're trying to figure out what rules it plays by. And you know, Sean Penn's character is like, 
a suspect. He's like black sheep. He's not that reliable. He right. probably means well, but he's like the problem child. So well, he, he and he's totally, certainly vulnerable to being corrupted. Right. And it, he could definitely get his, uh, you know, his older brother, I think that's their relationship, mm-hmm. involved at this rich guy involved in this thing. And they totally cart him off to Mexico and dump him. No one will believe your stupid story anyway and leave him for dead and then just take everything he owns. And so again, you're thinking, is this part of the game? Or is this like, you sucker, you've been conned. You're just a rich sucker, and now they've got everything you used to own. When you're, yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, yeah, I agree with you now that I'm remembering that. And my, I remember my first feeling was, okay, this has now gone from a psychological, um, mind-effing thriller to a more classic Michael Douglas genre, the revenge story. And now it's going to be about the revenge, where he's going to find out what really happened. And of course, they're playing me like a fiddle, because that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Now he's going to go find out. But that was always still part of the same story. Exactly. If you, when you go back and look at it, like any of these movies that have a twist, you can see it all piecing together. Everything that happens in this movie is constructed to make our main character, who we, we make us learn who he is, and change all the bad things about him to be better. So he has to be put in situations that he's not used to. He has to... You know, from from the most simple things, being frustrated that he can't get the thing out of like the the clown or whatever, just like person who's used to having everything go his way all the time, to all the way at the end, finally confronting his deepest and most you know troubling fears, uh, you know, his main issues in life. You build up to that, but every step along the way, chucking him in Mexico is part of the whole like uh, getting him off of the pampered lifestyle thing and making him do something and and show that he has some grit and show him how the other half lives and like i mean it's all very trite stuff but because it's put into this structure where you don't quite know what the hell's going on and so many theories are plausible uh i I think it works out as not a silly like you'll be visited by three ghosts that will teach you you know the true meaning of christmas right and you you could just shake it off oh you know just a couple other quick notes um james rebhorn is the guy who plays the um the guy from crs who's also the actor the skinny guy yeah i mean you know is, could there be anybody in the last 25, 30 years who's more like that guy? It's so perfect that they picked him, in the, that they cast him in this role. Because we've seen him in so many things. He's been in so many TV shows. He's been in so many movies. It's like the idea of, of you know, when you pick this certain kind of character that's so used to seeing as the, like, what? Like a, I don't know, like a city councilman or mayor or, a, you know, a, a position of authority, right? It's so great that they chose him. Because how perfect would that be where you go like, oh, that's that guy from TV, <laughs> <laughs> right exactly and that that's why he's so perfect in that role because yes. he seems like pretty detached and glib and then when you find out he's just a, an actor looking for a job that fits too like he's both like he's he's he is both versions of his character perfectly why have i not seen deborah Kara unger in more things she's uh, the, awesome the, the female lead yes yep she she was definitely she's great. Very she's, awesome. she's she's categorically beautiful and charismatic. She's got amazing... Uh, she'd be a good action star for... Oh, totally agreed. Totally agree. I mean, I think she'd be better than Linda Hamilton, with all due respect. But uh, yeah, yeah that's, I thought she was great. I'm trying to think who else was great. Uh, Sean Penn, awesome. Yep. You know, underrated guy. I think he was great in this. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of San Francisco. So do you, the, the little fun bit of trivia, uh, if I'm remembering this right, I'm not looking at the IMDb page. Uh, the father on, you know on top of the building and everything is yeah was he the lawyer from goodfellas i believe that is charles marionette okay. uh, and, and if i am correct in my memory martinette 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 okay yeah. it was close yeah. uh you, you know who that is a lot of voice talent charles martinette i don't think right. i do 
uh, you probably don't know this because you're not a gamer, but you have a, you have at some point heard it's a me Mario. Oh have come you, on, that's him. That's him. He does the he does from Nintendo from Nintendo sixty four onward, surely possibly before that. That's him. He does that false set on Mario. He is the voice of Mario. Oh, there he is. Oh my goodness, that's right. Who am I thinking of? The lawyer from Goodfellas. He looks so different. Oh boy, those scenes were great too. The the like the family movie scenes, you know, home movies. Yeah, and, and like I said, the whole thing, like even when he's in the Mexican desert and it's all sunlit, it's just so just degraded yeah. and like grainy and they do a good job out. on roughing him up too. I think I think that I was pretty sold on the roughed up version of Michael Douglas. So I mean, you know, I guess maybe to kind of close this a little bit. I, um, I this may sound like self involved to want to make this about the viewer, but I I thought this was a very good movie as a movie but like when i look at it as a movie about being somebody who loves movies i kind of love it even more to be to be honest with you because that's when you're sitting there and going like this is the thing is we are michael douglas in some ways except in as much as we go in and pay to do this like we (laughs) we go in to have somebody deliberately screw with our expectations break us down and then potentially sort of provisionally build us back up in exactly the way they want to see exactly what they want us to see and to cause exactly the when done effectively exactly the emotions they want us to feel. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Landed on that X. Like the best movies, the like that X is in my mind when like a great movie and a great movie maker just like just nails it. Like just you know you and, are and, that and they guy. Earn it. You, they get you there, you, but they yeah. earn it. You didn't realize. You know you didn't realize where you were being taken. Then all of a sudden, whoomp, right, right in the middle of the X, and you're like, well done, well done. <laughs> slow collapse so thank you very much for that recommendation and i can recommend it to our listeners uh at this point we can uh, have the timestamp for hello and welcome back if you're avoiding the spoilers uh if you haven't seen it we uh, suggest you watch the game if you haven't seen it and you just listen to what we just said you are horribly spoiled but it's really good the game 1997 david fincher i watched the whole thing good job This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by MailRoute. You can learn more about MailRoute right now by visiting MailRoute.net slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. Hey, you know this. IT departments are expected to do way more these days, but with less money, it is 2016 and stuff is getting crazy. And that includes lots of really important stuff like stopping spam and virus attacks. On top of that, you got end-of-life announcements for trusted hardware and software options that make these decisions so much more difficult. First, Postini went away. Now, MX Logic. Who can you trust to do the job well and to stick around? We suggest you try MailRoute, because MailRoute will protect your email and your hardware against spam, viruses, and other attacks. There is no hardware or software to install. If you own your dorm- domain, that's all you need. That's all you need to use MailRoute. MailRoute's team has focused exclusively on email protection since 1997. Their interface is easy to use and loaded with admin tools, including an API. It's all designed to make your life spam-free. MailRoute also supports LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging, outbound relay, everything you'd want from the people handling your mail. In fact, right now, MailRoute is even offering price matching for McAfee and MX Logic customers. So keep in mind, you can stop spam starting today with a free 30-day trial of MailRoute. All you got to do is go to MailRoute.net slash diffs. That's MailRoute.net slash D-I-F-F-S. And listeners of this program will get 10% off the lifetime of their account. You can even send an email. Send it to sales at MailRoute.net. They got people. They got email. You know they got email, buddy. MailRoute protects your email from spam and viruses. That is it. That's all they do. And they do it better. They've been doing it longer than anybody out there. So please, 
Have a look at MailRoute.net slash diffs. And our thanks to MailRoute for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. The game. Oh, my God. And Daniel Shore. <laughs> the late, great Daniel Shore. Daniel Shore was such a presence in the 90s for me on uh, NPR. Which one is he? He's the guy. He's the first thing we see. He's the old guy on the fake CNN. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This no, was Daniel yeah. Shore. Oh, yeah, I remember. I remember when he retired, yeah. Yeah, and Daniel Shore, he was on um, on um, Nixon's enemy list. Yeah, the number of marbles in his mouth just increased as he got older. Oh, <laughs> he was good, man. Yep. Yeah, NPR has a thing for keeping people around a little longer than they probably should, but uh, but he was good. He was great. I think uh, he got to dine out on that uh, Nixon's uh, enemy thing for a pretty long time. <laughs> You know, I was on a list with Paul Newman. <laughs> now I'm thinking of The Simpsons again. <laughs> Daniel Shore? Paul Newman? <laughs> this, is, this is Nixon's enemy list. Well, guess what? You just made the list. <laughs> I'm a stupid moron with an ugly face and a big butt, and my butt smells, and I like to kiss my own butt. Oh, do you know the? Uh, this isn't a faux dive? This is a dive? You know that one? <laughs> no, I don't remember that <laughs> my one. My favorite mo scene again early because you know i stopped watching right. um there is like yuppies or whatever oh, whatever the, the right. group of yuppies and like uh they they have them go into a, like the it was when dive bars were a big deal and they have them go into like a little storefront type thing in this big long wooden tunnel that takes them all the way across down to, to Moe's and the yuppies come out and they say <laughs> this isn't faux dive this is a dive and mo says you're a long way from home pal <laughs> yeah that was real funny the way you took away my dignity the one, <laughs> the moment when it turned for me fairly, fairly early on was when something happens and I guess the cops are coming or something and Mo runs into the back and there's like a killer whale back there. Is it a panda or a killer yep, whale? Yeah, I remember that one. Yep. <laughs> oh, we had some times. You got anything else you want to recommend before we move on? Yes, and? Um, I probably do, but nothing off the top of my head now. We have a whole section on recommendations and endorsements, so I'll maybe I'll build up a list for then. Uh, oh, we, yeah, if we, we have the Now we're going to do the uh, evidence-based scheduling. Uh, so when you tell Merlin to watch a movie, it takes him, he, he, whether no matter what he says, it actually yeah. takes him this amount of time to watch from beginning to end, so I have to factor that into future episodes. No, let me, let me literally beg you, do not listen to what I self-report. Don't listen to what I say, watch what I do. Watch like that, what, what I do. It's evidence-based scheduling. Yes, I mean, and. I don't, I don't want to beg you anything, no. so no. like... B-A-I-G? It's like Ed Bagley? Ed Bagley? Bag? Yeah. Major? You're, you're, literally, you're literally begging me. Now on to our uh, entree topic for the evening. This one's been, uh, we've been batting this one around for a while. I don't know what it means, but I'm interested in it. Oh, this is an easy one. This is a gimme. This is uh, back back when the show used to have a theme. Remember that? Back around episode seven? Oh my God, that's when I was Merlin Man. Which yeah. week is this? Just so I remember. Is this, are, are you, is this your week to be mean to me again? Uh, we're losing is. track. We're, both of us are losing track. I think it oh is. Oh, my God. Yes, and. Yeah. We're going to talk about jobs. That's right, because uh, I think they are obvious uh, explanations of how we got where we are, in particular, like, first jobs. Like, what I was thinking of is, well, well first of all, what was your first job, and then what do you what do you learn? What did you learn in your first job, and then what do you learn in your subsequent job? Like, job history, whatever. Like, but I feel like every, everything, every job that you have, no matter what it is, there's something you come away from that right. job with not job skills but some some like life lesson that seemingly you can only learn in the working world 
and most of them are depressing. So I would start with you. What is what was your first well, actual just, job? Just to, to put a little bit of Shinola on that, I think the other part is that we are two people um, who are both. I don't know. I feel like we are both fairly candid about the extent to which we have been shaped by even later jobs. Like it seems to me, like you know, a lot of your, um, or at least some part of your. How do I put this? You're very conservative about many things, I think very intelligently, but you're very conservative about like, I've got to have this steady money. It's got to be like a steady job. I almost certainly will not love what I'm doing, but like, this is a thing that I do. They get this much out of me. And like, I don't think you're being like, you know, uh, miserly about your, your talents, but you seem to have a very professional relationship with your work where you would never enter- entertain these crazy ideas about like going off and doing your own thing and like, you know, having a Patreon way to pay the mortgage. Oh, I'll, I'll entertain them. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's like, in, on the one hand, I mean, candidly, uh, in the modern age, the thing that I'm arguably best known for is back to work, which is something that came very much out of my work talking about work and my dissatisfaction with my work talking about work. And your unsuitability for any purpose, like, you know, software it's and all funny. Caps. It's funny because it's true uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, I take the jab, but it's true. Like, I'm really bad at work. It, uh, I, it's not even a jab. I'm not bad at work. You, I'm, bad you, at you, you t- I'm bad at jobs. That's what it is. I don't think it's even a jab because I, in my experience with people whose relationship to work is non-standard, let's say, like the, the you know, unemployable people like Marco or whoever. Like <laughs> oh, those, no. I would never hire that guy for anything. <laughs> right. Well, but they're unemployable not because they don't have skills, but right. because they're, they're like, you know, they're like wild horses that can't be tamed. Like the he's people. A, he's such a diaper baby. Could you imagine if he actually had to go to a meeting in order to make a check? Can you imagine that? It's. <laughs> He sounds genuinely allergic to even being invited to do what other people have to and, do. And that, but that's the thing. Like Lots of people are, and we'll talk about this when we talk about things you learn in the jobs. Lots of people are annoyed by work. Everybody's annoyed by work. It's, it's, it's a common you know, source of comedy and camaraderie between people working. But a certain set of people have the gumption to do something about it and go off on their own. And it's difficult. And they somehow make it work. And they are more successful than any of us wimpy people will ever be. I mean, you are you're doing the same thing. I'll just keep myself. I'm the only wimpy one here. Like just actually going to a plain old job because you can't bear to think of the, the risk of doing it the other way is why I'm not successful and other people are because they have the guts to try to do it. And it's, mm. it's just, you know, it's like it's that's 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 uncharacteristically lazy of you. That's not accurate. Well, uh, but there is... Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's not just... That's not true. I mean, it's just... Well, here, I mean, we should talk about like, that, but ev- I, dis- ev- I disagree. Everybody does whatever it is that they have to do to make themselves feel okay, right? For you know now. what I mean? So I'm not, it's not as if... Yeah. You know what I mean? But like, if you would feel that you are wasting your life in a, in a crappy job, and that feeling is stronger than the feeling of fear about what what will I do if I go off on my own? Like, I, I just know so many people who have gone off on their own to do things, and even if they're struggling or whatever they just they just seem to be doing what they want to do as difficult as it might be and you just have to have a different mindset to different mindset than i do than i have to be like so when i say that you're unemployable you could say well it's insulting because it's like a jab because saying i don't have any marketable skills and no one wanted to hire me but you could also be unemployable because well, you know i said it before it sounds silly but like that you can't be tamed that you have things that you want to do there's a certain amount of bs you'll put up with and beyond that you you think that you have there are more constructive things that you could be doing with your time and that you can be successful at those. Right, you don't need right. the framework of a job to let you be able to make a living. Right, right, right. So um, there are potentially, I think we should start, you want to start with the beginning? I mean, I, I do like the idea of talking about the, the later stuff if we have time. 
and interest. But do you want to start with early jobs? Yeah, because like I think your very first jobs you learn, especially when if you have your first job when you're young, you learn things about the world that aren't necessarily about work at all, but are just about like changing from a child into. It can be a real slap. I mean, it can be be a real, um, real cold water to the face when when you go out there and realize, you know. how little other people care about your precious world. So what was your, what was your first job and how See, old were you? I, f- I feel like I've told, I'm more than happy to tell it again, but uh, I've you told the story. Up. Well, it's a good story. I've just told it a lot. Have I told the, show, the, the story on here about working in an English restaurant? I know a lot about it, but you should tell the short version of it. So I had jobs, uh, like I'd been a occasional uh, underage busboy which is a very hot movie on Cinemax, by the way. Uh, uh, underage busboy at my parents' restaurant when I was 12. I would come home weekends from military school and do that. I had done... I had helped my mom with some basic stuff around the office uh, when she was doing real estate. Did you get paid for that since those were like family Yeah, things? in both, in, both in- instances, there was a little bit of money involved. But the first job where I went out and worked for strangers, I was probably, I want to say, 14 or 15. It was probably ninth grade. And I was like, you know, I want to get a job. And mom's like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, you can buy stuff. It's good. So uh, I went through the, uh, the local paper, uh, probably the Suncoast Times, and found an ad for this new restaurant that was opening that uh, needed busboys. And I was like, busboy, that's a cool thing. Like, that seems like a neat job. So long story short, I go and I apply at this place. It's these incredibly English English people who are starting an English restaurant and pub. Everything English. It's English, English, English. And they said, yep, okay, fine. I was like, you know, I've done this, I've done that. And I, wore, I actually wore a three-piece suit. So, I mean, I, I did look like somebody in, 80, in an 80s comedy to go to this job. And uh, please forgive me if you've heard this before. But I go and I show up in the three-piece suit. And they're like, yes, yes, by all means, come on in on Friday. Bring, you know, wear, wear black pants and a white shirt and, like, bring a bow tie. Because guess what? You're our new busboy at the English restaurant. Fantastic. Mom drops me off. Uh, they're like, yeah, come at, like, I want to say, like, three. So, like, right after school, she drops me off. The restaurant isn't open yet, and I am directed into the kitchen where there's a Mexican man with a lot of dirty pots who's making lots of English food for the night. Okay, hmm, this is kind of interesting. Okay, so uh, I was like, you know, I've never done this before. Anything I need to know? Da, 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 da. They're like, well, first just go on here and you know listen to Luis or whatever. And Luis directs me to, you know, the giant, 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 like 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 mess hall, like a jokey mess hall sized pot. The entire day's worth of cooking, I have to go and, and wash all of these. And remember, I'm the busboy. So I go and I have to wash all of those. There's constant washing, 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 washing in this tiny little disgusting kitchen with me and my black shirts and black pants and my white shirt. And uh, then, uh, okay, when you're done with those, now take out the trash and come back, wash your hands. Now you need to peel these potatoes and slice these onions. Okay, kind of kind of funny for a busboy. You see where this is going. Uh, I basically, this place had an owner, uh, dude, this waitress slash wife of the owner. There was a cook in the kitchen and then there was me, the quote unquote busboy, And I did everything. <laughs> and, and so that was pretty weird. And that was odd. And so basically as soon as somebody left a the table, they'd come back and say, Hey, new kid, put on your bow tie, go out, bust the table. Is this going on too long? I'm nope. almost done. I'm almost done. So we're getting to the punchline. So this went on for, you know, um, probably like, you know, two weekends, maybe four or five days. It was weird. I didn't particularly like it. The people were nice enough, but a little cool. 
uh, I did not I did not know how to be a prep cook, even though I was technically being a prep cook. And plus, let's be honest, I'm 15. I don't know shit about shit. I'm just a kid, and I'm just doing what I'm told, and I want to, you know, please people. So finally, it comes payday, and uh, my mom drives me there to pick up my paycheck, and it was for something like $40 or, or less. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was like this, this infinitesimal uh, small amount of money. Remembering now that I have mostly functioned as a crappy plonger and plonger and uh, prep cook, but also as kind of a busboy. But, you know, 80% of what I did was in the kitchen doing what most people were being paid, you know, $8 an hour for at the time. So I was like, uh, okay, thanks. I took, took the check out to the car. I'm like, does this seem kind of small? And she's like, no, no, that's not right. The minimum wage is whatever at that time, you know, probably three twenty five. It was probably three twenty five, three thirty five, maybe maybe not quite that, but it was over two dollars an hour. And so uh, I go back, and I'm like, uh, so my mom says this doesn't seem like enough money for the hours that I did. Sorry, strong opening. Sorry to ask, but you know she had me come back in, and uh, did you guys pay me, you know, minimum wage or whatever? And they go, oh, we don't have to pay minimum wage. We're English, and scene. <laughs> And it's so true. I only worked. I only worked. For, <laughs> I only worked for another week. Nothing in the that. rule book that says you have to pay minimum wage. It goes back to the Magna Carta. What do they call it? Uh, first night, Kristallnacht. What's the night when you're allowed to go get anybody? Prima Nocte. Prima Nocte. Yeah, yeah. So that was that. That was my first. I think that was my first job. And then I got a real job after that. But that was the first one, and it definitely had an impact on me. So I feel like there's a lot of things you came away from this learning. Well, first of all, there never trust the English. <laughs> There is uh, in a lot of states you don't have to pay restaurant staff the real minimum wage is a different minimum wage because they are their payment is augmented by tips or whatever. So there is there is that sort of double. It was it was at that time and may still be two oh one an hour. Yeah. Um, that but that's for that's for service that's for service work not for right, working right. in a kitchen. Um, but yeah, like the, the whole you know we don't have to pay you know off the books payment type of things where you're getting screwed by the 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 more powerful are, are screwing the less powerful there. Uh, but I think you learned a lot about um, kind of working in a restaurant. But like the big version is that if you are the new person and you know nothing, whatever the worst work is regardless of what your title is or what you're supposedly hired for of course you're going to do whatever the work whatever the the most annoying least skilled work is so in a restaurant that means washing dishes which every you know great chef will tell you i start off in the kitchen washing dishes why because when you know nothing and when you're 15 years old who do you think is washing the dishes <laughs> who do you think's washing? of course you're washing the dishes yes you julia call you a child boy. what are you doing back here right like of course you're washing the dishes like everybody starts washing the dishes well did um, you actually i'm sorry did you go and google that it, is, it was three 335 no I, I guess 325 oh wow you're amazing yeah the federal minimum wage uh in 1981 and 82 83 84 oh my god the minimum wage from 1981 to 1989 was 335 yeah wow oh my goodness and and, and less like you said less for like wait staff or tipped pe- people and i think it was 201 kind of forever yeah yeah so sorry, yeah, but no, you're right. You know, it's exactly you have exactly the job you deserve. You know, yeah, and and then the other part of it is like you know being being screwed by the more powerful people. Like they weren't even paying you the minimum. Like minimum wage is, is bad enough, but at least like you put in the number of hours, you get a thing or whatever. But this is like a you weren't getting like a, like a printed paycheck from ADP. I'm assuming you were getting like a piece oh of paper. no no, it was like an index card in a pencil type situation. But also, I mean, I mean, what I learned later, my next, I want to say my next 
don't hold me to this, but I think my next job that I had was as an actual busboy in an actual steakhouse. And I mean, I remember hearing that the people in the kitchen were making at least uh, at least like five or six bucks an hour. Oh, wait, but so the, the English shop, you just never went back, right? That was it for that one. I right? think I worked <laughs> I worked maybe one more uh, weekend after that because from, I'm from Ohio and I'm, uh, you know, always apologetic about everything. Or did your mom make you stop? She was like, you're not going back there. That's crazy. That's 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 a total ripoff. No, that's ridiculous. Yeah, but yeah, it was weird. It was it felt very strange. And, and you know, given that I probably spent what? Maybe 30 to 40 hours all told. Probably less. I mean, probably maybe 30 hours at that place. I still remember so much about it so distinctly. I remember the dartboard. I remember the swinging doors. I, re- I, I remember the awning over the front door. Isn't that strange how when you're younger, like these things, you know, you imprint on these things. This is the arm and ice water, I told you. I mean, think, think about the incredible pressure in that situation. It's your first real job. Your, oh, like you said, right, your first right, right. real life job working for strangers, and you don't know what's going to happen. And you're dressed up in your three piece suit for the interview, and you have to dress a certain way for the thing. And they right. just tell you to do things, and nothing makes sense to you, and you don't have anything to compare it to. And then you can go show you check to your mom and ask her if it seems right. And she sends you back in. Like, all of that. Oh, is like, just, you would have been better at that. Every, every fiber of your being was stewing in whatever juice it is that cements memories. <laughs> <laughs> we talked Stewing about that in the juice that cements memory. Did we talk about that on the last show? We did. You talked we did. about we did. it. You talked about it. Water yeah, thing. and I, like, I yeah. mentioned like I still remember an automobile accident. Uh, I was I was in two or three pretty big automobile accidents. One I remember was my mom got hit. Mm-hmm. Putting, putting on the car and driving section. All right, go ahead. Um, <laughs> and uh, I so it was like the ultimate slow mo when that car hit us in the intersection. It was like. It really, it took like, it felt like it took 10 minutes to, to go through that collision. So yeah, yeah, no. So uh, yeah, I did get a lot. Do you want to go to yours or do you want to give me more uh, cross-examination on this one? I got a lot out of it. And as much as I am still a punch, I remember thinking, okay, I need to watch myself when I go to these places. I need to like count the money. I need to, you know, I need to you know, do what I always knew, which is like, you know, count the change and do the math. And I, I did learn that lesson for sure. So like that's why I was talking about the lessons you learn in your first jobs aren't necessarily about like I learned what it's like to work at a restaurant. Or, yeah, you did kind of, but you also kind of learned like no one is looking out for you except for you in this world, and you will be exploited if you can be exploited. Right. And jobs aren't are always what you think they're going to be. And like all I think all <laughs> welcome kinda, to America's favorite Marxist podcast. <laughs> yeah, it, it, things that you can be told many times, and maybe you might think you're learning when you're like working in your parents' business or whatever for like people who love you, but it's not the same thing as like you said, working for strangers. That's the perfect uh, the the line to draw, and and how does that work out? And for kids especially, because most people get their first jobs when they're fairly young, you can be lucky and get like a kid job where you're like a camp counselor that sort of lets you extend your childhood in a familiar environment. Maybe you went to that camp and now you're a counselor. Uh, and it's almost like you would do it for free. It's just something for you to be occupying your time during the summer, or you can be thrown to the thrown to the English wolves, and uh, and just have a real life uh, <laughs> new new job experience. And I think everyone has to go through that to some degree. That's why I think it's also why, especially successful people, always want to tell you about what their first crappy job was. Like I may be a captain of industry now, but uh, <laughs> right, let me right, tell right, you. Right. I had a paper route and it was snowing and Luxury. I would, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like they want, but they want to tell you like the, the school of hard knocks that they went to and how they learned all these important lessons in life and how they've convinced themselves that they're applicable to like enterprise software or whatever the hell they're, they're currently pitching. But you know what? Um, it's funny. Like I, I, I've thought and 
talked a fair amount about how, at least for me, I feel like college, college is one of those things where I think this may have to happen inevitably, but I really feel like college has historically been such a strange thing that you really, I really wish it could be broken into the four or five things that it really is. Because like, and, you know, so for example, like, you know, education, that's the nominal reason that we go to college, right? It's to go receive an education. But it's also about independence, right? It's also about the shock of responsibility in some ways, you know, even if that's just as simple as you miss a couple meals because you don't have any dough. It's just, you know, it's about a lot of things. It's, a, it's about being away from your parents and being independent, which are slightly different things, because it's not like you're staying with a family member. So it's kind of a shame that college has to be so costly in order to do these like five different things that really can and should potentially be five different things. And I think your early jobs are the same way. Because, like, you know, I'm a smart cookie, right? And I think, oh, I just learned a lot from this job that I had for two weeks. But the truth is, like, I thought, oh, what I really learned is don't work for crazy English people. But then I went and worked in the steakhouse where everybody was so drunk and so coked up, like, all the time that it was actually, even though it was a place I worked for two years, it was still, it was actually crazier in some ways, although I did make much better money. So I was like, oh, you know, the lesson learned is uh, don't be too quick to gather your lessons that you've learned. Yeah, college, I think, is can, has the potential to be a gentler slope out of childhood into adulthood because it's like a training wheels version of independence. You're away from your parents, and you have to be responsible for your own things, but maybe you also have like a meal plan, right? right? And you are on your own, but there's a whole community of other people who are in the same situation as you, and you kind of support each other through this, you know? And you have responsibility, but also your parents are going to be mad if you drop out so there's still that motivation like you're not and pe- quite people, on your people own. will notice and people will at especially at a large school people will still notice if you're not doing what you're supposed to do so you know you still need to like go to your room to sleep and you still need to be places at a certain time and like you know you will be called on the carpet if you're not doing what you're expected to do yeah or at least some of the time you will maybe yeah. less of the time then but and it's such a contrast to like imagine if you had gone out of high school and immediately gone to have to get your own apartment and get your job and like in that situation nobody cares if you're you know doing a good job at your job and you get fired or you can't pay your rent you know like assuming you don't have if you're not in your family and they're and they're not on top of you nagging if you really are independent you really do have to make your way and college is a nice transition there but that's why i think the first jobs even if they're just like a summer job or whatever gives you a taste of what that will be like even if it's just something as simple as for people who have difficulty with this you have to show up somewhere on time exactly exactly. there's a schedule and no one's going to remind you by the way you have to go to work today because no one else is keeping your schedule and you're not in a school where a bunch of other people are going to the same location at the same time every day you have to know when you're working what time you have to be there what time and the consequences of you not doing it is just you don't get to like laugh it off and, and go talk to the vice principal for five minutes and you're gonna fired from the job if you don't show up well yeah it's 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 yeah super I, I agree with everything you're saying and i'm trying to catch up with you on the breaking down part because you've got the thing when they say like go get a job right you want to get a job because you make money and you learn responsibility okay but there's actually, you know, there is more to it, when, especially that big wad of learning responsibility, because you're also describing a new kind of relationship that most of us haven't had, which is a st- almost completely abstract authority. So like your parents or your parents, right? You got to you got to do what your parents say. You do what your family members say. And you learn from a very young age to follow what they say at school, right? You got to pay attention to what the teachers and the principals. This is an interesting, abstra- more abstract problem of you go somewhere and have this usually fairly informal relationship with somebody who's older, much more powerful, and has much more money, and you basically agree to work for them. So you're agreeing 
I mean, I don't want to over, you know, <laughs> Marxify this, but you're really agreeing to go in there. And what you're being paid for is like agreeing that they're right all the time, which is really hard to do when you're young. I, I found that incredibly hard to do to basically get paid, you know, 201 an hour plus tips to basically do whatever this person says. And it, it is uh, jarring. I found it very jarring to do. Did, did you? Yeah, especially if you're like a spoiled rich kid who thinks, or, he, who you know, thinks he's well, pretty like, smart <laughs> who, who yeah who basically like the other context that we in all the other contexts you describe uh obnoxious smart spoiled rich kids are used to arguing so your mom tells you to clean clean your room and it's like the beginning of a negotiation and you start whining about it you start saying why you shouldn't have to and it's actually clean and why do i have to clean my room it's just going to get dirty again and you go through all that because even when teachers tell you stuff and you you know you're, you have a smart mouth and you talk back to the teachers and you're like oh you know or maybe you don't do homework and you you realize that you're just one student you're gonna get lost in the shuffle and you can skip this assignment or hell you can even skip school like you always still feel like and that's part of being a teenager is rebelling against all this authority. And when it's your parents, unless you have like military parents or, you know, like you can argue with them, you can negotiate, you can wheedle, you can whine. They are eventually tired and can't take it anymore. And they say, fine, you know them well enough that I, I can see this happening with my daughter. Now mm-hmm. I am at once disgusted and proud. I think she knows she can probably see that I'm struggling to try and be consistent. And like, you know, she doesn't, but she wants what she wants, understandably. And I think she's getting good at knowing that at a certain time of day, when I'm with one parent, there's a pretty good chance I can eke out an extra N minutes of whatever it is that I want to do, whether that's a TV show or a video game. In the morning, it'll be a video game, like on the weekends, um, where we're both like, oh, God, she's been up since six and watching TV. Ugh. And then on, on like during the, during the afternoon, when I'm ready to like... F- for some reason, people always want to contact me in the afternoon. I've got to go deal with stuff. I just want to lay down and be left alone. And she can pretty dependent, dependably know that that is a time when I am, I think, when I am weak, and she can eke out a little extra time. But that doesn't work with old man Johnson or whoever. You don't just get to go in there and like have them and ply and alternately like ply sympathies, manipulate emotions. That person's just going to go knock it off. Yep. Hashtag dad sploits. Do you know about sploits? <laughs> dad exploitation. Dead exploits. Exploits uh, is short for exploits. It's for when you you know a vulnerability in a piece of software. You get. Did you just make that up? It. No, that's a hacker thing. Uh-huh. Anyway, dead exploits. Oh, is this when uh, you uh, you just you, uh, you you done messed up real good? That kind of thing. Exploits. Exploits in software. Weakness in a software that you can exploit. Anyway, but we'll yeah. go to the hashtag dead exploits. Um, yeah, but so. The, the, uh, you're yeah, that's what i'm getting at but like with all the other authority figures you can find out and that becomes part of the game like i remember trying to figure out all the ways like uh john roderick style all the ways that you can defy authority and not actually go to jail like what like i can defy authority and not get kicked out of school and not go to jail and not have my parents disown me mm-hmm. let me just walk up to all those lines right but jobs, they don't have to deal with that crap. If you come even close to a line, if you start, it's just like, well, fine, you're fired. We'll get somebody else. And by the way, you know, you don't get a good reference. And so good luck trying to get another job. And people want money. And so you like all that attitude. If you come into a job with that attitude, you won't have that job for very long. And you will learn that lesson pretty quickly, I think. Like there's no, yes. because they have no skin in the game. Like it's it's not like they're going to argue with you. You're like, all right, come come and try to get me to stay in school. Nope, sorry, you're fired. Bye, we'll never see you again. There's plenty of teenagers born every day. You know, that, That's kind of the irony though, is that what you go into it with feeling like you have no skin in the game. But if you are, if you're somebody like me and you do ultimately really want to please people, uh, yeah, yeah, you'd like to have that money. But yeah, you want to feel like you survived. I, I mean, I hated quitting jobs. I felt like such, 
such an abject sense of failure when I, when I, when I would quit a job. And I've, I've had some really silly ones that I've quit in the past. But I mean, you end up, and what starts out completely abstract soon becomes very real. Uh, Stockholm Syndrome is the wrong word for it. But you do establish this like psychological bond to your master in this case, you know, the person who's responsible for you and like is in a position to like, you know, toss you out. You want to please them. And like if you'd rather somebody else get fired before you. Like how do we get to that point? That's crazy. Yeah. That happens so fast. The Merlin Whisperer. Shh. Shh. Cesar? <laughs> I, don't, I don't watch that show. You know. Exercise, yeah. discipline, and then affection. You treat it like a human. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. I love Squarespace, and I think you will too. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by going to squarespace.com. Gang, I have been a huge fan and evangelist of Squarespace for over five years now. It's not only the place that I use for hosting many of my sites and, yes, my podcasts. It's also the first place that I recommend for anybody wanting to do the same. Squarespace sites are gorgeous. They are professionally designed masterpieces that look great right out of the box. Regardless of your skill level, you don't have to be a coder, you don't have to be a designer, it just works. Squarespace offers intuitive and easy-to-use tools that take all the pain out of getting your stuff up. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site, and that ensures security and stability, even if you get a link from John Syracuse. Squarespace is trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected companies in the world. The crazy balls part is that Squarespace plans start at $8 per month. And that price even includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, which you should totally do. So please check these folks out and do tell your friends about it. I don't know if Squarespace is perfect for everybody, but it's perfect for somebody you know. Get yourself out of the webmaster business and point your friends to Squarespace. You can go and start your free trial site today with no credit card required by visiting squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code DIFFS, D-I-F-F-S, and that will get you 10% off your first purchase. You are going to love this place. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all the great shows. Squarespace, build it beautiful. My memory is so bad. If I had a first job, if I had a first job before this, I don't remember it enough. My first real job where I went to a real place on a schedule and got a real paycheck. Um, I got it pretty late, like... Maybe because the laws in New York don't let you do everything as young as you could probably get your permit in, in Florida when you were growing up at like 13 or whatever the hell it was. But everything, everything in New York seemed to be delayed. And I didn't want to get a job, right? I totally did not want to get a job. Other, other people I knew were getting jobs. I didn't want to get a job. But d- eventually d- I, I Despite the flowering of your hobbies. Because I mean, yeah, this would I, be well, right, in the, right smack in the middle of your hobby, ta- hobbies getting expensive, right? I was taking advantage of my parents' largest like I, I, one of like you my parents didn't own a restaurant or anything like that but they did pay a landscaping service to mow the lawn and i underbid the landscaping service to mow our lawn and mm. so i said stop paying the landscaping service to mow the lawn for x amount of dollars i'll do it for much less than that can <laughs> right and it's stupid because i'm their son and they could have just made me do it for free but they didn't and they paid me enough that you know and it was hard work mowing that lawn we had a big lawn it was really hot um but that doesn't count as a job um, I wasn't one of those people who I knew, and this has come up a lot on a lot of shows. I think you talked about it with Dan on Back to Work, but I've heard it in a lot of different podcasts. Talking about people who would end up being uh, entrepreneurs or business owners or people who wanted to work for themselves. And one of the unifying stories that I hear for a lot of them, and I saw this in real life, was in elementary school, those are the kids who sold candy to other kids. And right, right. Like in second or third grade, uh, Brian Maloney, who is not listening to this right now, was the kid who figured out that you can go buy candy wholesale and sell sell nerds to kids for twenty five dollars a pack? And he, make, he was your uh, he was your Phil Sides. 
And make, we, all, we all had one. <laughs> and make ridiculous profit margins. I mean, some of those people just turned into drug dealers in high school, too, which is also really a good high margin business. Um, but I wasn't interested in that. I was excited to get a box of nerds for 25 cents, despite the fact that it cost him five cents to get. You know what I mean? Um, those were people who well, and, and just to like clarify the business. brilliance of it, like our, our friends if you could not have gotten away with selling can- <laughs> they could not have gotten away with selling boxes of candy in school if people weren't already selling boxes of candy in school, right? So I mean, the school opened the door by doing all these ways to like try and like you know scare up money for chess club or chorus or oh, whatever. But, but this this was outside. This is elementary school. Remember, he would buy these things at like the local wholesaler. Like it wasn't a school affiliate. Oh, he would sell God. them on the bus. He would sell them on the bus, same place you know, or like in the courtyard later. You know, not that you're selling candy when you have court. But anyway, like those people are go getters, and they want to go. They they want to make money. And they understand how the system works. I was the opposite of that. I never wanted to have a job. I wanted to avoid getting a job. Even as all my friends were getting jobs, oh, I work at this place, I work at that place. I didn't want to get a job because why would you want to? It's work, right? Um, and I had enough money from, you know, when, starting out when I was in elementary school, I had my allowance. That's what I'm buying candy with on the bus. And then parlaying into essentially the, the big boy allowance when I'm mowing the lawn for my parents and getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually I had to get a job. I, maybe I was 16, older than you are, uh, when I got my first job. And trying to find that job like you know look in the newspaper for places that were close by i didn't have a car didn't have a license didn't have a permit um actually 16 might have had a permit but it's the I, worst so, so i had to find some place that was either walking or biking distance so i did i found uh, a place that was biking distance it was a women's clothing store and they had <laughs> they had an opening for a stock boy which is a lot like bus boy it's got boy right there in the name you know i'm a boy <laughs> i can be a stock boy uh-huh um and I don't remember anything about the interview process or wait, like wait, inter- wait, just rough, roughly what kind of was it like a retail place? So I mean, it was like a, it was, like a, it's discount a chain. Place? I think it might still exist. It was Mandy, not plural M A N D E E. So it was kind of like young women's cheap clothes, like not really super high class, but not really super expensive either. Kind of like I don't, I don't know. Still I, available at Mandy dot com. Yeah, dress barn always cracks me up because of the idea of you going dress to barn, barn. To, barn to get your clothes. But I don't know. I don't know if it was similar. I don't know anything about clothes. I want to get my daughter a dress. I figure I should probably take her to a barn. Yeah, go to the dress barn. Um, There's lots of it, these in uh, in New York, so that's got to be it, right? New York, New Jersey. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, Andy. Right, but and so I, I the interview like. The application interview process, I think I filled out a lot of those. Like, can you go to places and, and say, I saw you have a job opening. Can I fill out an application? And some disinterested teenager gives you a piece of paper that you dutifully fill in the little boxes for, and then they take it and put it into something that they're never going to look at. I did yep. that in many places. Yep. Right? So that was the first part of the experience is realizing, hey, getting a job is not as easy as everything else. It's not, it doesn't get handed to me in the same way that, like, I know how I'm going to get into elementary school. I show up and they have to take me because it's the law, right? <laughs> I, I know how I'm going to get into this club or sport like anybody can. You just go out for it. I'm going to go get a job. And to it's just that Woody Allen thing. I mean, so much of life, especially as a child, is showing up. You get a ribbon. Everybody gets a ribbon. Yeah. And, and really, there was this was the first thing where you go to all these places that said they had job openings. But for whatever reason, I spend all the time filling out this thing and I'm, I never hear from them. Um, and... A lot of them are like food places that wanted you to have some kind of experience, and I had no experience doing anything. Uh, and I guess the stock boy thing was the only place that really required no experience, and they were willing to hire someone to just do whatever they want to do. So anyway, this is this is a store entirely peopled by women and uh, uh, teen teen women, and young women, and older women. 
there were no other males that worked at the store. It's a women's clothing store. That kind of oh makes goodness. sense. There was no big male manager or anything like that. Um, so it's just me and a, a bunch of women, which I didn't have any problem with because I'm uh, a, a healthy uh, teenage boy or whatever. But also, uh, I love I love the I love the little Soto Voce like the grace <laughs> the grace note on this series about your libido. That's always just kind of right there in the background a little bit. We never address it. And I like it that way. My libido. Yeah, this is if there you have are so much more libido than me. If it's there so are obvious. if there are women listening to the show who have never actually been a teenage boy. I don't know if you can. We can have a whole show about. It. Let me. Well, let's walk that back. There are women listening to this show that have never been a teenage boy. Yes, that's right. Yeah, right. Who have never? Because I feel like this is one of. It's the same way that that women can have a podcast about uh, if you have never given birth, you don't know what the hell we're talking about. Right. Uh, it's one of those singular experiences. Not. Not. I'm saying. Not that I'm saying they're comparable, but boy, teenage boys. Well, there's there's a, there's a comic that I like a lot, and I stole this guy's joke many years ago. But he says, you know, oh, women, they they they. They say, oh, you know, we like to look at men, too. And, and, oh, God, what's the guy's name? I'm always stealing his jokes. He's so freaking funny. I'll put it in show notes. But, and his joke is, oh, you have no idea. Yeah, I've, I've heard the bit. And the thing is, I don't oh, you heard him. Co- you heard him on uh, Dr. Katz. Yeah, he yeah says, exactly. He says it's, be- <laughs> it's the difference between shooting a bullet and throwing it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And I don't want to do the comparison thing because I honestly don't know what it's like to be a woman. And I don't but like But you're the- around women and women putting on clothes and women's clothes and you're dealing with clothes. Right. It be right. So, so I don't want to say that it's that, that, that like that teenage boys are hornier than teenage girls. I don't even want to say that. I don't know what teenage girls are like, but I do know what teenage boys are like and we're a friggin' mess. And it is <laughs> like it is just impossible. It's amazing that we function at all. Right. And it takes a long, long time to go out of that. So I'm not comparing. I'm not going to do a relative thing. No, nope. because for all I know, it is just as bad or worse for women. All I'm saying is I know what it was like for me. Yep. But on the other hand, uh, I had no idea how to talk to uh, attractive women who didn't we didn't have I didn't have anything in common with. So well, I didn't can, speak uh, to maybe, any. Maybe I missed this, but can I ask specifically, is this the first time outside of the home, outside of family? Is this the first time that you were? around a lot of adult-ish women no i mean like uh, like once they cross a certain age but that were but that were strangers uh because like there's teachers and like you know like anyone who's like a woman woman like for me it was probably like people over 30 i didn't care about that much uh especially god God, for me that would have been about 20 well, yeah. they just seem hopelessly like grown up to me. Right. And so there's the boss ladies who are just the ladies. But there was basically a bunch of other students from who were a couple grades older than me from my local school who would work the catch registers and be out on the floor and oh be in God. front of the dressing room and doing all that other stuff. Um, so basically, <laughs> I ignored them and they ignored you, me. You were in a movie from 1981. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I would have entire shifts where I would work from like four to closing at nine or whatever and not speak a word to anybody. They would never speak to me or look at me, and I would never speak to them or look at them. And this was fine with me because that's the type of person I am. But so that was the working environment, and the things that I was doing were I had a, this was a better job than yours because first of all, I got a real paycheck that I got paid the actual minimum wage, and you could see it right there, and you could do the math, you could see how much tax was taken out, and learn what FICA is, and all this other crap. Um, and my duties included all of the worst things to do in the store, obviously, because I am the lowest person on the totem pole. <laughs> but, as, it, as it should be. Yeah. and But the worst things to do at, at Mandy are not that bad. Um, when customers purchase clothes, the cashiers took them off the hangers and put the hangers in big bins under the cash registers. And I 
took those bins out from under the cash registers and sorted the hangers and hung them back up uh, in in sections ready to be uh, for people to put the clothes back on them different hangers in different sections when boxes came in of of stuff that the trucks delivered every day i unpacked the boxes and put all the things out and stacked the boxes up i cleaned the floor in the back room seemingly way too much like i don't i don't it may, maybe it needed to be cleaned once a week or something like that but I spent a lot of time scrubbing the floor because oh, it would get all scuffed up from the boxes that would come in. I cleaned the bathroom uh, that was there, the one bathroom that was in the back for all the employees. Um, and the main seemed like the main thing I did, which is reason I worked from, you know, shifts from like four to nine or five to nine or whatever, is after closing, I vacuumed the whole store uh with my little red vacuum cleaner and when the belt broke in the vacuum i fixed it and you know and did everything that you could you know like the whole store and it's just amazing how filthy a store gets and i i i washed the windows uh, after closing i washed the door during during the day and after it was done and just basically got the store all cleaned up and then locked up at night not with my key but like i would i would be the last one out along with the manager and she would lock the door we were both the two the two last people to leave um and they had a schedule, and it was on the wall in the little break room area, and I would know when to show up, and I would come, and at the end of every two weeks, I would get a little paycheck, and and that was that was my first job. Um, uh, there are, there I, are two things I, just based on your description, two things I love about this job that like I would still kill for. Like, okay, so two things about your job that I still crave, like when I volunteer at school, two things. One, it's incredibly well-defined right? Like, you know, when you're supposed to be there, you know what you're supposed to do. And number two, it sounds like you're mostly on your own. Yeah. Uh, like it, it was, it was well-defined in that there were a certain set of things I had to do every single day. And depending on the business of the store, some of them, it could affect the activity. Like if there's not a lot of hangers building up, I didn't have to hang and sort them. And there could be special things every once in a while. Um, but yeah, it was well-defined, and I was mostly on my own, which was kind of depressing because I wasn't on my own. The store was filled with like, you know, six, seven, eight other people uh, when I was there. They just didn't see me, and I mostly didn't see them because I was, I was yeah, in the back even, room. Yeah, but even when things got hairy, it was just enough interaction. I, and you tell me if I'm missing this, but like, like you know, like when, I, like when I go help at my kid's school, this has gone all the way back to preschool. It's like anything where I get to put on like earphones and do a menial task that I understand and not talk to people, like, I'm super happy. If I could have had that kind of job when I was 14, I would have loved it. Like, even if it's hard, even if it's scrubbing, like, not having, like, even if you get a fire that you've got to put out, you still get to mostly do it on your own. Yeah, I mean, like, it was it was a good first job, definitely. Am I, am like, I missing something? Because that seems like that would appeal to you. All right, so, well, here's, here's what I learned in my first job. I didn't really have to learn that much about the whole like showing up and keeping track of things because i was already pretty paranoid about that for school type stuff in the same way you have the dream about that you forget you forgot that you registered for a class or whatever i still have the dream that i forgot to look on the board in the break room and, and i was supposed to come in on wednesday and i didn't oh, right, right right but right. I, I was very conscientious about that um so but the main the main and most important things i learned was one this has come up in past episodes i learned if I don't have something stimulated to think about, something something for my brain to work on, my brain will eat itself. Okay. It will literally eat itself with teeth. <laughs> literally. Right? Yes. It will. There's teeth inside my brain, like in the dark half. Spoilers. And it will chomp away and just totally eat itself. And I learned this because going to the store and doing those same things every day, vacuuming, cleaning the windows, emptying the hangers, was mind-numbing 
I could, I was, I would like pray for death. I would look at the clock and the hands would not move. I was like, how long is this shift? Are you kidding me? And I would do the math on how much money I'm making. It was like four hours seemed like an eternity. Because it was, because it was just too repetitive? Because there was nothing mentally stimulating about it. Because it was the same thing every time. It never changed. It never got challenging. There was no problem to solve. I couldn't build a robot to, to vacuum the damn store for me. It was just, you know, routine, rote, manual labor. And I did it, and I did it without complaint, and I did a good job, and I tried to figure out how I could do a better job at it, but oh my god, like, I thought school was boring. School was, you know, you were being taught things, and your friends were there, and it changed up, and you changed classes, and there was gym, and lunch, and like, school was paradise compared to this. This was just... Yeah, it was like, it's like they had spent like a century and a half, like, engineering the kind of day that could keep almost every kid, like, from just freaking out. You know, there's enough direction and enough, like, stimulation to, like, keep you engaged. And, and I thought school was the most boring thing ever. Like, I thought, oh, God, I hate school. And I did hate school, but it's like, I didn't realize how bad it could be. Like, there was just nothing here. And I didn't know going into this that there was, you know, because every other activity I'd done in my life, I either had chosen for myself or had enough, like, educational value or didn't last long enough or had enough change that, that like... The idea is that you're just going to show up day after day and do the same thing over and over again. Oh, and I learned I am wow. Yeah. I am not. I learned I am not suited to that. Like I'm like you thought. Like oh, that must be cool. You can kind of like chill out or whatever. Like, no, no, I can't. Like my brain eats itself. It's terrible. I was like I was starting to have crazy thoughts and like time would just go so slow. And I would like I would be like no, nothing is worth worth this. No job. I should quit. This is I can't. You know, it was terrible. And the, the few rays of light I still remember like when i forget when it was like once or twice a year or whatever we'd uh uh take stock of everything do like inventory oh that's brutal right and inventory actually that was exciting because when you had to do inventory like the head office or whatever would send the send a box with the equipment and the paperwork you needed to do inventory and that equipment included these little like hand scanner thingies that you would go around the store and scan all the barcodes of all the items and then bring all the hand scanners back to like the crappy laptop and plug them in and it would like sum up all the numbers and handle duplicate scans and stuff like that so this was basically a computer system with hardware and the manager had no idea how to use this stuff and i was like i know computers and it was so exciting that i get to apply my brain to a problem briefly for one night only <laughs> to work and it was exciting to work the inventory things all right so that, so that was one lesson I learned. And the second lesson i learned is um and this this was an early lesson that i would uh, that took different i took different uh versions of this lesson in later jobs and the first one was that that i did want to do a good job that i did like when i scrubbed the floor i wanted to do a good job scrubbing the floor when i vacuumed i wanted to do a good job vacuuming and that for the most part my boss and my coworkers noticed this my boss noticed in that hey this guy is a good stock boy instead of just like pushing them vacuum around half-heartedly and get seeing what he could get away with like doing the least amount of vacuuming possible i was there making sure i got every one of these little things out and i wouldn't vacuum over the little plastic things i know they would just get caught up in the thing i would pick them up bend down to pick them up and put them in my pocket when i was vacuuming because that's the way you do it right and that you know when i was spraying down and wiping down the glass things on top of the things i would get every little edge and, and make sure there's no you know like i'm anal retentive right and so any sort of cleaning activity i wanted to do a good job well you're 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 a good man and thorough but you know the uh but there's the sliding doors version of this which is like when you're watching this whole thing in flashback you go oh like if i were the sort of person that wanted to slack off you would eventually learn where not trying very hard would not be noticed 
But that's not that's not how you roll. I saw that on the other employees. There were certain cashiers who did the minimum possible, like who found ways to, and, you and, know. And like where you, we, we, <laughs> you could tell that they, could, they had walked right up to the line of, you know, what was okay. Yeah, like they, they felt like they were in a safe place with their friends and they found out how they could slack off because maybe they had seniority. Maybe they let someone else help, the, help this customer and spend a little bit longer in the break room and go talk to the person who's, who's at the changing room or which jobs do you want that actually aren't difficult, you know, because I, I saw them doing that. And I was, I mean, I was trying to do a good job and I my sort of my thoroughness and the, 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 me being conscientious about it was noticed by the the boss people like the the manager of the store especially again around inventory time when i helped out with that it was exciting to have someone there who knew how this stuff worked and then the manager didn't have to worry about that and i could do it i didn't get promoted i didn't get paid anymore but hard work was recognized and in all other contexts, like, yeah, you know, your parents kind of recognize sort of, but most of the time, the, the dynamic of my parents, at least, was them telling the kids what to do and the kids trying desperately not to do it and then doing a bad job at it. And so there was not a lot of positive recognition because we were just terrible at like, you know, empty the dishwasher. Oh, do I have to? Oh, right, right, do it. Right, like, yeah. you know, I did a good job mowing the lawn, though. I have to say that I, I was a good lawnmower. And I didn't get much recognition from them from it, but I felt the satisfaction of a job well done. And I feel like I did a better job than the landscapers did because it was my lawn and I really cared about it. Um, but yeah, so that, that showed me that the dynamic you saw and all these things of like, if you get a job and you, and you work hard at that job, you will be recognized for that hard work. Um, so that's the second lesson I took away from, hmm. my, from my first job. And I, is there anything else? Oh, and also, uh, the very first day I showed up for work, uh, I, and on my, Maybe, you know, so it was a summer summer when I started the job. I had got a new 10-speed uh, bicycle for Christmas, and I parked it behind the store, um, and I didn't have a lock for it. And after my first day of work, it came out, and, and the bike was gone. Oh, no. Harbinger. So, uh, the the other uh, thing that I That must have felt momentous. Lock up your bike. Yeah. That's a good <laughs> lesson. Mean, like, that's a good lesson. Because I, mean, I had gone my entire life mostly not locking up my bikes, but mostly leaving them in safe places. So I made welcome, a lot welcome of, to the big city boy. Yeah, I made a lot of mistakes here. One of them was parking the bike behind the store instead of in front of it, which because was a mistake. Because there's plenty of cover to steal a bike. Yeah, like if you're going to steal a bike, if I had just parked it in front of the store, there would be more of a deterrent than parking it behind. But anyway, that was a good bike, and I liked it. Uh, my dad was oh, nice man. enough to give me to give me his bike after that, and after that I always locked it. How long were you at Mandy? I think I... Maybe one summer two summers maybe just one but like summer. a like a pretty good amount of time like you you got to know the rhythms you got to go through a couple yeah phases and i was working like, there multiple multiple days a week like you know i it was a full you know a full part-time job oh here's the other thing that it's not a lesson but the other thing that really sticks in my mind about mandy and, and, I, and I, I don't have like you have a, you have a lot of stories <laughs> the thing that sticks in my mind yeah <laughs> You have a lot of stories about food service, and I know a lot of people who worked in food service have a lot of those stories. I never worked in a food place, and I'm kind of glad because I think that would uh, mess me up. In terms oh, of, God, you learned so much. I uh, are things I don't want to know. But for the people who work in retail, especially if you work in a department store, and this this is, is sort of along the lines of, of uh, your mind eating itself, Yeah, in a place that plays music all day, Ugh. oh, it's bad. Oh, it's, it's bad. So bad. And, and here's what here's what's so bad about it. Um, because for people like me, my mind my mind is just it's going crazy in there. It's like it's ready. It's banging itself against the walls. It is ready to just rip itself to shreds because there is nothing to feed it. Well, and you got you've got to fix on something, right? I mean, <laughs> and, and the only thing it's got available to it 
right is the 970 seconds playing of please don't go <laughs> that whatever that dance song was it was not like by or, boss, by like uh casey and the sunshine band uh no the, the, oh don't 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 but don't but don't don't bump bump by yes no don't uh, don't 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 go uh maybe that's it yeah yeah anyway <gasps> Uh, or oh just like gosh. pick any other song that was like on the radio at that time. And those songs, you would realize that those songs would re- repeat over and over and over again. And they would become the worst earworms. Like, like thank God none of these songs are songs I actually liked. Because if I did like them, I would hate them by the end of it. These are already songs I didn't like. And yet they would worm their way into your mind. And it was like, it was like repetitive thoughts that you can't get rid of, but they were actually in the air just playing over and over and over again. I have, I have certain songs from, I can tell you, not even songs, albums. I've mentioned before. So the place I worked at when I was uh, a busboy was called Jay Lattimore's. It was a steakhouse. And every night they played The Long Run by the Eagles to where that became like one of my most hated records of all time. Another place I worked very, very briefly with my friend Alan was a pizza place. Oh, <laughs> John Syracuse. You know what it was called? Besta One. B-E-S-T hyphen A hyphen one? B-E-S-T-A Space, new word, O-N-E. What is it supposed to mean? It's a best of one. Hey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isabella, she got a flu. She's a sick. That's a no good boss. <laughs> it's a best of one. Uh, and that guy would play an album that I actually really liked. It was totally like a Ludovico technique. He would play Pretzel Logic by Steely Dan on an eight track over and over. Because there's no, an eight track will never end until mm-hmm. it breaks. Yep, yep. Yeah, but that becomes a kind of like uh, it's kind of like what uh, Roderick wants to do with uh, with Dick Cheney. Like it's a yeah. it, it is a yeah, certain kind totally of low is. level torture to have to hear. You know what I always think about when I'm going to Walgreens at, at Halloween time. I know this is like off topic, but you go to Walgreens at Halloween time and like it keeps setting off like the spooky like mm-hmm, or like mm-hmm. or the you know Big Mouth Billy Bass or something like that. Yep. And I'm like, I would completely lose my mind. No, you'd remove the batteries. Like you can't, you can't I have that. <laughs> that's a life hack yeah there's nothing i could do about the, the radio and the thing is because my mind was eating itself it would latch on to them as like a lifeline like it's like <laughs> stockholm syndrome like it would, it would you start to you start to identify with your captors and like you start to be waiting for the next version of Bitter, like madonna's borderline when is borderline going to come on next i need to hear i need to hear borderline again where where is it i need it i need i need it's like wilson the volleyball and like castaway it feels like, like i'm going to lose my mind you just keep on pushing my love over the borderline uh, yeah oh my and, and god I, yeah. music it's the sound the soundtrack for like these things and like it's funny like there are some things that i heavily associate with very pleasant emotions and other things that like i associate with like i still feel like when i hear a certain song come on you know what i'm talking about in a uh, clockwork orange right ludovico like yep, like yep. beethoven it changes beethoven uh for uh for uh malcolm malcolm mcdowell mm-hmm. is that his name alex yep. like you know it changes beethoven for him and that's the whole idea of it like there's certain songs that to this day like as soon as i hear the first few notes i might as well be 14 again like i'm so exactly right back in exactly this same spot in this same mall in this certain month i know exactly where i am yeah, and it's, it's our curse to have been born before. I mean, I guess we had Walkmans, but like in a, the modern world, when you're vacuuming the store after closing time, you got an iPod and you can listen to your own music. But I didn't have an iPod. My my mom had a Walkman. I didn't have a Walkman. Oh, you know what? We don't have time to do this, but I, I would love to talk about hmm, because I have so many recollections of music. I remember like being a closer at McDonald's right when I like I would bring my jam box to work. 
This is probably the summer of 1985. Your jam box? Do you mean your boom box? What did I say? You said jam box. Like the, yeah, it was a Panasonic the, the, boom the, box. The Bluetooth device. You can that, say that, jam uh, box. Lonely, that's lonely that's sandwich in the parlance. Makes videos for it. it wasn't called a jam box back then, was it? Sure. Is, is it, it like tennis shoes? Did you have a different word for it? Okay, first of all, you're right. Boombox was more in parlance, but Jambox is also acceptable. That's probably the you know second dictionary. In Florida, there. maybe. Mm. And uh, see, now you killed my story. But like uh, Squeeze, uh, 45 and under, like they're the Squeeze, like greatest hits from 1982 or three. Like I would just, that, I would, that will always permanently be associated with working at McDonald's. Yeah, you have to be really careful with music. And I tell, I tell this to my kids. Like, I yeah. know you may, may like a song, but there's two things that can go wrong here. One is you can actually listen to, to it too much and you'll hate it. And two is you can listen to it in an environment. That's why I, t- I warn people about ringtones. You will listen to it in an environment that is bad and you will forever associate that song with that environment. Like ringtones is like, there's nothing you can put it as a ring. Like, don't put anything you care about at all. Oh, no, 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 it's, it's totally true. And it, it will become heavily associated. Candy color clown, Nick, all the sad man. Um, but uh, do we have time for a whistle? I want to hear more of your other. Do you want to? Do you have other jobs you could share? Because I would love a whistle stop tour of some of John's other jobs leading yeah, up to. Yeah, I, I don't think pre-college. we can go, th- go through all of it. I, well, give I, me give, give me some of your favorites. Yeah, I'll give you one more. This is the the best job I ever had. Um, best job I ever will have, probably in all aspects, except for the fact that it didn't pay anything. Um, I would still have this job. If okay, I, I like this section. I have one of these me. two. Give me the best job you ever had. If you yep. don't account for the money. Yep. Uh, so I guess this is when I was in college and I would come home from college and I would have to get a summer job before I went back to college. And because my parents both worked for the government, uh, I managed to, through, through, through graft and corruption, which is what the government is good for, especially nice. county government, uh, <laughs> got a job uh, at a park, um, at a, a Suffolk County Park uh, on Long Island. And the only people who had these jobs are people like you'd go there and you'd ask the other people who were employees, like, uh, where's your mom or dad work? Like, what, what office are they? And like, everyone. It was just all really just purely graft and greed. Yeah. Oh, no, it's just uh, whatever they, whatever the word for it is. Yeah, literally, put in, a good every, word. put in a good word. Literally every single person who worked there had a parent who was in government. There was no way to get that job. You could have fill out the application like all those ones I filled out, but nothing would ever happen until someone gave the word to someone to actually hire this person. So, Right away, I was I felt like I was lucky to have this job, uh, and this this is a uh, South Haven County Park, um, and there was a uh, an old guy who ran the park named Bud, who was right out of a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> he had he had a chocolate lab. Um, what was his chocolate lab's name? Uh, I Chip. don't remember. No, it was it was a girl's name. Um, anyway. Never saw him because he was super old and he was like, should have been retired, but wasn't. But he technically was the guy in charge because in government, if you're old, you're in charge because you've been there a long time. And then the second guy was in <laughs> it's charge. It's called seniority. <laughs> yep. Uh, the other guy who was in charge uh, and there was a couple other adult men, all of whom, by the way, were also the sons of people who were in county government. Um, one guy looked like uh, you got you never watched um, uh, Sons of Anarchy, I guess, right? Not really. Anyway, the big he was also in uh, Batman Begins as one of the criminals, kind of big, burly, round guy with like long, curly hair and a beard. Uh, he's a character actor. He plays the same kind of guy in all these things. Anyway, there was a guy there who worked for that huge, huge. Oh, guy. that guy. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yes. Just Mark Mark gi- Boone. Mark Boone Jr. Gigantic uh, guy. And so it was basically like two or three adult men, very gruff, tough looking people, and then a whole slew of people my age, like college students or high school students, uh, all the privileged children of, of county government employees, right? 
and we got outfits uh i think this is the first job i ever had an outfit for you got the little county park shirt with a little brown oh, pine that cone is so in the corner. cool uh bring your own pants but uh but you did get you did get the <laughs> shirts and, and stuff like that uh and you had to and you had to wear that every day so i had a uniform for work which was kind of fun uh here's what the job entailed the park had it was, it was it was a big park and there was a series of bathrooms around the park that had running water to them and, and toilets and stalls and everything like that those needed to be cleaned every day usually multiple times a day depending on if it was a weekend or you know if it was a, a busy time at the park mm-hmm. there were giant metal oil barrel type garbage cans around the park <laughs> classic those needed to be emptied um and there were like fire pits like where you could make uh, like uh you know like uh not fire pits but like a, a structure that was like cement and had grading right, on it like, you, like at a campground yeah, yeah. you would bring coals and you put them in and they would you know so people would, would cook things on them and you had to clean out all the, the 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 fire things and stuff like that certain times of year you would have to bring picnic tables from one section of the park to the other. like fourth of july was a big thing it had like about two days of prep to bring all the picnic tables from all the other picnic areas down to the main picnic area to just because they knew a lot of people coming fourth of july and have just a huge amount of picnic tables so everyone could have some place to sit and, and have their food so you had to move all those things um when there were storms and trees fell along the trails you would have to go and remove the trees and cut them into pieces uh when you had the cut pieces of trees you have to split those into firewood that would get carted away and I'm just describing like the actual tasks that need to be done. Here's what the, the the mechanics of that were. So you have to go around and empty these garbage cans. And again, big metal oil barrels filled with uh, macaroni and cheese that's been in this 90 degree sun <laughs> for the entire day. Right. Very heavy. Right. Here's what you get to do, though. You get to ride on the back of the garbage truck. Do you remember when people used to stand up? The garbage man would stand on the back of the garbage truck. Wait, wait, wait. You're not, you're not talking about a golf cart or like garbage a, truck remember you're talking they, about the, no 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 like the beep 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 and you hold onto a handle and there's a place the, the for you guy, to stand the guys would stand on the back of it going down the street and then oh the, the garbage truck God. would stop i've you always would wanted off. to do that who I've didn't want it like kids that. these days don't know everyone wanted to do that when you were a kid and the garbage and, truck and after, came you, by, after you throw the garbage in you smack the side to let them know now it's time to go and not only that <gasps> do you know when you put the garbage in the garbage the big crusher thing comes down you had one of those you get to run the crusher thing you know how much crap we crushed in that thing? Like, I think the best thing we ever did was like a full arcade cabinet, like a Pac-Man size cabinet. <laughs> Put that in there, and you know, it's not. But easy like, to- but like, oh my god, how satisfying! Like to to the grossness of emptying one of those giant, probably fifty-five gallon drums, and with the, with the macaroni and cheese and the and the detritus. But then you you got to cause the smashing to happen. Yes, yes, yeah. Oh and, my um, god, we get to we get to re- drive dump trucks, like pickup trucks, was what we drove around the park. Wait a minute, in, how how right? old were you? I I mean, it was college. Remember, I was I was coming home from college oh this is a summer God. job during the college so i had my license so we we go around the park in pickup trucks someone would drive the pickup truck and the rest of us would be loose in the back of the pickup truck and we would go at tremendous speeds through through <laughs> trails in the woods that were just wide enough to fit both oh, mirrors on the, on the truck right we get to r- drive dump trucks i got to drive the dump truck a lot you know why because it was stick shift and i was the only guy who drove stick most of the time so i got to, dr- to drive the big dump truck around and tilt the big thing and dump out the big piles of wood we get to split wood with axes so, like when the, when you know we get the chain, we get to use the chainsaw to cut the the tree that fell across the, the the path or whatever into pieces, put it into the dump truck, go bring it over, dump it out, put all the things down, and chop the wood like into you know split the wood with axes and and wedges and everything into smaller and smaller pieces until you got firewood out of it. Oh my god! Even cleaning the bathrooms meant that you get to drive around in the pickup truck. And here, here's the here's the thing that made this the best job ever, right? You think like in the end, mostly what you're doing is cleaning bathrooms and picking up garbage. It sounds like the crappiest work you could possibly imagine that you're going to do it. But here's the thing. 
it's in a park. Like, Long Island is a beautiful place during the summer and all year round, I think. You are in that park. It, you're, ungodly, you're, 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 uh, you're Ron Swanson. You're out there, like, in the wild. It's, it's like 6 a.m. You are the only people there. So what, peaceful. What, what happens very quickly is you start to take ownership of this park. You start to think, this is my park. I run this park. I keep this park running. No one else is here. Most, most of the time you are working at the park, other people aren't there. It's only employees of the park because they just come for, like, the nice part during the middle of the day. You're there early morning when nobody's there. You're there when everybody's gone and it's dusk and you're cleaning everything up. You start to take ownership of this piece of land like you're like a, you know, a Native American well, becoming and, and one with the land. And you must start to think of it differently. It's like we think of it, <clears throat> I think of it like the beach or the park or the whatever as the place where you go and there's a ton of people there. You must think of it as a place that's mostly placid except for this one rush hour where people exactly. come. Exactly. And then it goes back to being this nature land. And, and and really, it's only rushed like on a couple days of the year, and the rest of the time, it's just a few people trickling in because this wasn't really a busy park. It's not like Jones Beach or something like that. But you really did start to realize, and you would look at like Bud and the other people who worked there, and you'd say, I understand why they have this job for life. Who wouldn't want this job for life to come and to be yes. outdoors? And of course, I wasn't there during the winter or anything. Like they had ducks and fish and hunting and horses and animals running around. And it's just like, this is it. Like, and I get paid oh, for God. this amazing the best the best job ever now well, and do, really, do, do you remember what it paid uh i have no idea like it was it was above minimum wage because it was like you know a, a you know a nice job for but people that, who but, have government but that's, employees that's like but, a certain kind of like prestige job i mean, I mean you know like, what i mean like you wouldn't think it was because when you saw us just doing grunt work it seemed like, i mean it was hard work like it was hard manual labor like scrubbing toilets is not a fun thing to do like emptying out these putrid barrels full of garbage or like my, my favorite thing going into the the women's restroom and, and emptying all of the boxes yes like, yes 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 i know yeah. what you mean yes, and, yes, and yes, remember yes. all these uh these bathrooms were there's not air conditioned they were essentially mm-hmm. outdoors so mm-hmm. in the heat of summer there was some bad stuff going on in there oh. but that was just all part of the job and it became normal and you re- what you really felt like is that you as this lowly you know slightly above minimum wage paid employee and your band of people who are working here are, are you know, you you really do start to take ownership of the park. And it was just, it was a beautiful park, and it's more beautiful when no one else is there. And you felt like you were, you were making it work for everybody else. You were preserving this land, you were maintaining it, you were maintaining the structures and all the things that people got to enjoy when they were there. When everyone came for 4th of July and had a good time, and you cleaned up all that crap, you felt like you had... Like it was a job well done. Like that you had provided this park for these people. They, they had trashed it and left, and you will clean up after them. Uh, and yeah, we did have we did have races. We did have Cushman's and golf carts and stuff like that. And we did have races. With, Cushman, with those. that's the term I was looking for. Yeah. Yes, but you know, you backdoored something good here, which is like the sense of ownership. Like that's this is a great job, and like so many of the same things that you described. But like, there's also also something really nice from like finding something beyond pretzel logic on the hi-fi that like helps you find a center and like to find like something where you want to take ownership of it just because you want it to be good like that's that's that sneaks up on you when you got your first jobs you know what i mean yeah and like comparing it to my first job is like well isn't this the same where you wouldn't you take ownership of the store like didn't you want the store to be nice for the customers um and like why did your why did your brain not try to eat itself when you have to clean these bathrooms every single day it was just so different being outdoors and having enough, like, it was a wild thing that you were managing, right? It was, and, and there was enough variety. There was always something. There was always something that was different on any given day. Yes, you had to do all the routine stuff, 
but there'd be some problem somewhere or something would be broken or someone would accidentally drive the truck into a tree or like when the when the cushions came out like the little the little, the little gas powered things like when we had to move the picnic table for people who don't know uh if you've ever gotten a ticket uh from a meter maid that's probably somebody driving a cushman it's like a small golf cart like vehicle yeah, and and they, all all of ours were gas powered. They didn't we didn't have electric ones. And there was you know the big kind of knobby four wheel drive ones, and there were smaller ones. And when we had to move the picnic tables from one place to the other for because they had like people would I don't know rent out or reserve. I guess they didn't pay, but like reserve certain areas for like company functions and stuff. And you'd have to move the tables around. The way we would move them is you would. This is all part of like everything you had to do. You had to learn from the people who already had this job because the boss people would never left the little, you know, the, the headquarters thing. They would rarely come out. We had to know how to do it. Anyway, to move the picnic tables, you'd bring one of these little golf cart things over, take the picnic table, put it upside down on the little back part of the golf cart, and right. have people hop on there and hold the thing on. And then you would drive, again, through these incredibly narrow trails in the woods between trees at basically as fast as the cushions would take us to bring the tables from one place to the other. Because you could use the pickup truck for it. The pickup part was big, and you had like six cushions and like two pickup trucks, so you could get the work done faster if you went on these little things. And that time of year, when, when the picnic tables had to move around, was the best because we would have water balloon fights from the back of those things. Uh, as we, as we, as we passed so each other on, on the giant fields, we would have people s- sitting in the back of them with their supply of water balloons trying to throw... It was the best. Like, everything... And it helps that it was summer, and it helps that we were essentially carefree teenage mostly boys like there were girls who worked there and they mostly worked at the the uh the front like the, the thing that took your tickets and everything when you came in and they listened to the radio all day and talked to each other and that seemed like so much worse of a job than what we got to do because we got to basically play with toys all day and mess with things and it was totally like totally sexist division of labor where that was the girl job and what we had were the sure. boy jobs yeah but you also it's nice because like part of the i always felt like part of the challenge of coming home is you know this this starts really from i want to say your first like one of your first time home for me like thanksgiving break 1986 like coming home even after three months away from home man i had gotten wild and like i as much as my mom had been very permissive with me and like very cool with me like it was just so uncool to have to go and be with your family again after college. And in this case, that must have been great. Like you've got you've got something like that's not horrible to do. You get a cool uniform, you know who you are, and but you still get to have like yeah, like a summer thing going on. That's really cool. And it was like a time warp too because it was maybe an hour and a half commute depending on traffic. It was like it was a pretty far distance out. I got it was farther out east on the island than I lived. So I had to I had to drive pretty far out east on, on the expressway and you know, on, on a series of uh uh, uh very, very high speed roads to get very far away from where i live to go to work and if you had to be at work at some ungodly hour in the morning that meant you had to leave like when it was dark out right even in the summer you're leaving you know. right and right. sometimes you would, oh i didn't even tell you about the best part i didn't even tell you about the best part of this wow. job. so for i don't understand for, for whatever reason bud um the the old grizzled white-haired man with the chocolate lab who was the most senior guy there um was in charge of the showmobile the showmobile, I don't know if you've seen these before. It's like a it's like a trailer, like a, not a semi-trailer, but smaller than that, but still a pretty big trailer that you need a pretty big, beefy truck to pull. But it, uh, but it wasn't like, a, you know, the, the trucks you normally see uh, pulling a semi down the road. It was like more like a very big, beefy dump truck that had a trailer hitch in the back of it. And you would pull this big trailer, and it just looked like a white rectangular thing like any other trailer. But when you get it to its destination, it's got legs that go down, to the point where like the wheels start getting lifted off the ground and then the side folds down to become a stage 
and then the Whoa, other side the show mobile yeah and the other side lifts up to become like an awning so basically you pull it up to the side of a field instant and you, show and you unfold it I, I haven't seen that movie then it's the christopher guest one right <laughs> anyway instant instant yeah. show Oh, instant, not best in show. Yeah, instant. Show. Oh yes. my god, that's and so, so cool. So, and, and you you would deploy that tactically wherever there needed to be a show. So uh, there was this could be rented out at places elsewhere on the island. So the one regular gig we had was at Aguan Park, which is out in Southampton, with all the rich people are. And every Wednesday night at Aguan Park, the showmobile, the county showmobile, would come out and it would unfurl unfurl itself, and then usually like some big band thing or some like thing that would do cover songs from the fifties, or you know, sometimes occasionally like a rock band would come onto the stage and play music from like 6 p.m. to like 8 or 9 p.m. And then we would uh, fold everything up in the showmobile and go and and drive it back. And I was the one chosen, I assume by Bud, to be his showmobile helper person. It was all I was the only one chosen for this job. I worked there for multiple years and it was just me, and it was just Bud. Right? And Bud would drive the big semi thing because I I could I think he needed a different class of license yep, to drive yep, that because yep. it was it was big and I would drive Bud's truck which was the the Bronco which no one ever got to drive except for me behind him or in front of him to to scout things out right driving first of all driving the Bronco was fun because this was an official county vehicle um, and I got to do whatever the hell I wanted in parks that we went to including <laughs> drive drive over medians and cut around people in lines because I was in the park Cause, vehicle because you're the guys who tell people not to do that That's exactly <laughs> exactly I'm in the car I am in the, the authority car and when we got there Bud would park it and I would set the thing up I, he taught me how to do it once and I paid attention and it was like he unhook it from this thing and, and crank this winch and do these things and put these shims under here and make sure it's level and do all the thing and do the hydraulics to lower the thing down and get it all set up and there was an AV system that must have been like from the, from 1962 inside there like that had an amp and these gigantic speakers and microphones and stands and sometimes the bands would bring their own AV stuff and I didn't have to deal with it but other times I got to play like amateur roadie you know really amateur roadie to try to get things set up for the people who were going to come on so they could talk wow. to the speaker and have a thing and, and you're there setting the stage up and everything like that and once you have it set up there's nothing to do but just to sit back and just like wait for the, the band to do the show and you are like backstage and helping out with anything they need but most of the time i would like be sitting there reading david halberstam's the 50s and you know <laughs> over the course of a series of weeks government I think I read, work man government work I, I think i read a lot of and you know and you're waiting until like the show goes people enjoy the show sometimes there's fireworks after the show it's night everybody leaves the mosquitoes are out you got to fold the thing back up turn off all the lights uh buckle everything back together and drive this whole you know contraption follow bud back to the park where you're going to park the showmobile for its next gig and so i already said i drove like an hour and a half to get to the places out east sometimes like agamon park is pretty far out southampton is pretty far out Sometimes we had shows like the, the most memorable one we had was in Montauk, which is at the very tip of the South Fork of Long Island. That's a long drive in the showmobile. And remember, the show ends at like 9.30 and 10, and it's dark at night, and it's time to drive all the way back to Southampton pretty slowly in the showmobile and then already back home. And the drive from this is uh, – this was one where I think I had like a, a, a uh, an apprentice sidekick guy who was with me to help out i don't know if it's because this is a long haul or whatever <laughs> maybe i was training my replacement um and so it was the two of us in the bronco and i think maybe bud had gone ahead or something or maybe we were going ahead of him and we're driving back from montauk in the dead of night and it was like the most wild thunderstorm you could possibly imagine where like lightning bolts are coming down in front of you like right on the road 
No one else is out on the road. It is pitch dark except for the huge bolts of lightning that seem to be trying to, to hit into you in the car. A terrifying drive uh, at night in the in this truck, which wasn't a big truck. It's just a Ford Bronco or whatever. But I, I felt like I had my life in my hands that entire drive. I think I got home at like 2.30 a.m. from that. And this was the exotic extra thing I got to do in addition to my regular park job is that I was the showmobile guy. And I just had a lot of memories taking that showmobile. To all, that's why you could see all the different parks. We got to go to the park where there was the biker convention at Cathedral Pines where the bikers would show up, literal, actual bikers. But, you know, who knows what was going on there? I just felt like it was, that was the most unsafe situation I was probably <sighs> in and set the thing up. Oh, we got to, I got to visit all the different parks, all the but different like, parks. What a, and what a perfect combination of all of these different things. Like there's responsibility, but not too much responsibility. Like there's stuff to do that's like kind of hard work, but it's not that hard work. It's like such a great combination of independence and like ease. Like, ah, what a, I, what a, I, I got to hang out with Bud's dog. What the hell was his name? Mabel? May? Oh, she was a great dog. Um, And you got to, and because Bud was like, Bud was this old guy, but he could, drive that truck like he could thread a needle with it and he'd always have me out there like trying to help him or whatever tell me where i'm going like how much room do i have or he didn't need me like so you felt like you had some responsibility but really there was a much more responsible and skilled adult there taking care of it and i remember like the second year i worked there they had me start early and go to where the showmobile was being kept like in mothballs for like the winter and open the thing up and repaint the inside of it like getting ready for the new year and repainted the floor and everything like so how many was it just one summer? It sounds like maybe two, more. At least two. Okay. I don't think it was three. It was at least two. <sighs> Best job. Best job I ever. Just, uh, just Googled uh, Showmobile, and I'm looking at some amazing photos. Look at that. It's a real stage. Oh, my goodness. This is not some kind of like phony baloney stage. This is like when you go to like your county's nicest annual fair, this is where the main uh, act will be playing. It's got lights built in. Look at that. You couldn't see anything at night. Like, most of these shows were at night. The showmobile gigs were mostly at night, unlike the other things where you have to be at the park at 6 a.m. Oh, and it, one one more thing for the parks thing. So if you, yeah. you show up at parks early and you get there when everyone else gets there, everybody gets deli sandwiches. Someone does a deli oh, run. You God put in your nice. orders. You get to learn all the, the cool deli shorthand, all the shorthand that the people who work at the deli know for what kind of breakfast sandwich you want and what are the orders want. This is because back before we had secret menus. You would learn like Adam and Eve on a raft and wreck it. Like you learn like no, how no, to order like, you know, um, uh, H- you just write down H E C S P K and people knew what that meant. It was ham, egg, cheese, salt, pepper, ketchup. Uh, which oh, I would never have, wow. by the way. But like, but you would decide what you want on your egg sandwich, and uh, if you wanted coffee with it, like it was just simply like a multi-letter code. I don't. This is not universal. This is just a place that we happened to go to. But we would learn. We would learn the lingo, and they would learn the lingo, and you could take <laughs> you, orders. You, uh, you reeled that off pretty fast. Well, yeah, that was, it was good stuff. And they had they had a couple of uh, signature items, like the Hungry Man, which was a little expensive in my blood. I, the thing I remember about this place, though, was so you get. I didn't drink coffee and still don't. But you'd get a breakfast sandwich, which was like, which is basically an egg sandwich with whatever the hell else you wanted on it. It was like a, a big bulky roll bun type thing right. with uh, two fried eggs, and if you wanted, oh, God, uh, that's you heaven. know, bacon on it or cheese or you know, like I said, ham or some people put ketchup on it because they're crazy. And if you wanted extra salt and pepper, and you would get with that either a, a small coffee in a little styrofoam cup, or you would get some fairly terrible orange juice in a little plastic container, and. That breakfast sandwich plus either coffee or an orange juice was a dollar twenty-five. What? The whole thing was a dollar twenty-five. That's insane. I mean, it's obviously below cost. Even right? by made, made, oh my it, god, that's it made crazy. no sense. Right? The hungry man was like two twenty-five. The hungry man was like a hoagie with like potatoes and egg and everything. <laughs> Let's on not it. go crazy here. 
Right. And so we would buy that with our own meager money. It was just ridiculous. That's and such a bargain, the- though. Like, I was paying it like uh, – I'm trying to think what I paid for big gulps when I was uh, – I mean, like, that's that's for a meal? That's, a, that's a, unbelievable. Yeah. And, and I don't know if it was some kind of, like – county employee discount more corruption in graft or was that cheap for everybody or they're making their money elsewhere i miss like, graft i wish i had more graft because <laughs> because the the older people would get coffee all day there and maybe they they made it up in volume well, like every they, place they, i've ever worked for example co- cops get free coffee at least yeah I mean, we, we weren't we didn't raise a little cops but if bud showed up maybe get enough respect as the guy who uh, is right <laughs> right around the corner from the park so and what's maybe his dog's name of, we think it might be mabel Oh, I got it'll come to me eventually. Um, we do not. I, we are we are running long. I do not have time to tell you my all time favorite uh, uh, job that did not make much money but was great. So, like when you look back on that, like gosh, golden golden memories of like uh, that could have been a, a much worse summer or two. So, when you think about your job today, how does that factor into it? Like, well, what did you learn from that, or what do you think about? Like, what realistically what, speaking, I realized it was a lot of manual labor. And in my current condition, my current programmer fitness condition, I would probably not be up for things. I mean, like chopping wood. Well, no, but let's let's take it as read. That's a moment in time, but that that made an impression on you. Like, what impression that you got from that time there? I mean, it sounds like there were some like genuinely like joyful moments working there. And like, how does that affect you today when you think about that? Uh, I think about like if I was retired, I know I would have a lot of fun because <laughs> if you're retired, you can just hang out and part. Like, it gave me a lot of the stuff I did, a lot of the stuff going off to college you mentioned before, leaving Long Island get, really deepened my appreciation for Long Island as a place that I like, as a physical hmm. place. So you could probably add really? It as a topic is like a physical places that are meaningful to me that take on more meaning when you move away from them. Um, and I mean, I always kind of knew I had that appreciation and that like, but going away to, to live in a much more urban, because I went to Boston University and it's basically an urban school, like not that Boston is like New York City or anything, but it's very different than the suburbs and it's certainly very different than a park. Um, so being in, in Boston proper for the entire school year and getting to come back home to Long Island and, and work in a park was a nice sort of expansion. I, th- I What do I think about when I'm working? I just... I mean, maybe eventually my brain would have eaten itself there. Maybe year after year would have become dull and I wanted to do something myself. And sometimes I think about, like, if I had continued and my career had been in the parks department, would I have been programming in my head the entire time I was driving the pickup trucks around? Would I have wanted to steal away to the, you know, unknown uh, equipment shed and whip out a laptop and program stuff? Probably. Like, realistically speaking, it's a little bit of a fantasy that I would be satisfied in that job forever. But that's it's a fantasy I occasionally entertain. You know what I mean? Yeah, but there. Yeah, maybe, but there's bigger patterns there. There's a big pattern of surprise, fun thing I didn't expect, right? So, like, when you took that job, like, did you know that you would get to go do the showmobile with Bud? Like, no, I mean, you didn't know. You didn't know anything. You didn't know. Right. You didn't that's even what I mean. That, like, know. to me, I'm not trying to be. So, I'm trying to avoid being too on the nose about it. Like, part of what's fun in a situation like that is you go, ah, I gotta go get a job. I gotta like bring my own pants. I gotta like have this outfit. And then when you get there, you go like, oh, you know, actually, after like four days of this, it doesn't feel rough. Like, it doesn't feel like clunky to have this job, which is a great feeling. Like when you go, you know what I mean? When you go from that feeling of like, this is a new job and it feels clunky. And I can feel like, you know, every gear change at this job to like, oh, this is kind of cool. And you know what? This one guy who I thought was kind of a hard ass, he's actually, he's just a, he's like an okay guy. Like when you, you know, get enough uh, experience in even in just a week to go like, you know, that's not so bad. Like that's a really good feeling. But then you do start like on the one hand, 
And the jobs that I've had like that, I take solace eventually from the repetition. There are some parts of the repetition that I really like. Like there are certain elements, like I hate to admit it, but there are certain elements of like wrapping up silverware and putting it in a napkin or bringing out a rack of glasses. There's something like oddly not quite meditative, but like satisfying about knowing like this is exactly how much work I have to do. This is how long it takes. But then you get the fun stuff where you go like, like in, in my case, and oh God, I want to tell you about my greatest job ever. But like the busboy job, one Friday night, my boss came to me and said, are you doing anything this weekend? And I was like, uh, no, it's uh, it was Memorial Day or something. It was like a long weekend. He's like, we're having, um, I'm having new carpeting put in tonight. Do you want to stay overnight and like watch the restaurant while they're installing the carpeting and then set up for lunch in the morning? And you have to imagine <laughs> me as in like an insulated kid. Like I was like, yes, let me call my mom. I think I would love to do that. And he paid me 50 bucks to stay overnight, make sure they didn't steal anything and then set up in the morning. I could play whatever music I wanted. You, you know, this experience, right? You know, this mm-hmm. feeling of like sudden, like, Oh my God, this is so cool. Like I was, I was by myself. I was tired, but I was like, I was drinking all the Coke that I wanted. He's like, go eat whatever you want. It's all fine. But he trusted me. So like, it was a big, crossover thing because like this coked up guy who ran a steakhouse in florida like trusted me and was like i will give you money for this and you will be here and it was amazing and i the next day they i was johnny on the spot like i swept it all up smell of new carpeting like putting out all the tables bringing everything back from the other room it was an amazing like like feeling because it went from being this rote thing that i understood to like an exciting exceptional thing and i think that's kind of still what we look for in a job is like, when do we get that exciting burst of like, ah, this is a fun thing I didn't expect. Yeah. And I think you get more like it, it, taking ownership is like you felt like when you when the new carpet had gone in and you got everything set up for the next day and everything, it was like, the, not that it's suddenly your restaurant, but a little bit. It was like, this is my restaurant. Just, like, just I, in the I sense that I, I knew that when Joe came in that next morning, he'd slept it off. I knew that I wanted him. I was part of the project suddenly like in a weird way. It sounds weird. But like I was part of the project where like I was the host of him seeing this whatever, probably $12,000 worth of carpeting for the first time. Like I had kept the place, you know, safe. Nothing was stolen. Stolen. Nothing nothing was broken. And kind of like what you're talking about with whatever job you have, like I wanted him to walk in and go, hey, this is great. This worked out fine. And although that was something that he'd probably done five times before and has done 20 times since, like I I was excited to have the opportunity to be good at that Plus it was exciting. Plus it was money. Plus it was independence. Plus it was music. And like those are the kinds of formative experiences that you can't put a name, a number, or a label on. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like that was just really exciting. Yeah. Like sometimes oh you show God. up and, the, and there'd be a skunk loose in the park. Would you call animals or uh, like the extension service? No, for it's that, a park. You can't do anything to hurt the skunk. What you're just trying to do is keep the skunk and the, the people who are visiting the park away from each other. Like, we just want everyone to live and let live here. But on the other hand, it's a bad situation if someone comes to the park and gets sprayed by the skunk. Is there, any, find out where the, is there any chance at all there's a photo of you in that uniform? Uh, probably was. Like, that's the other thing. We, we, didn't, we didn't have iPods. And also, everybody didn't carry around a phone with them all the time. There would be so many pictures if there were. But, but like, no, maybe no a one, newsletter, one shot from a newsletter. No, or, no one had cameras. No one brought cameras with them. But I learned <laughs> I learned a lot of important things of that job. Like. The, the big tough guy you're right he was a big teddy bear and he was awesome and everybody there uh, was, was pretty awesome here's, here's the one we'll end with this the one thing i learned it's almost a shame to tell this to people um but one of the things i learned all right so i'm, I'm working at the sparks department with the children of other government employees um most of whom uh just by by coincidence of odds are not nerds 
So I am the only, this is another aspect of the job. I would not spend any time talking about D&D and computers with anybody there, right? We would just talk about park things and hang out. It was kind of my, my time to be like a jock. I'm not going to say that the people, other people there were all like jocks or, uh, you know, but they, they weren't interested in nerdy things. They, and most of the people who were there, like lifers, weren't academics, let's say. If they were into academics, they wouldn't have ended up at, uh, at county parks, right? Um, so I'm hanging out with the guys, and I'm always the smart guy with the guys, mostly hiding my nerdy things to get along with the guys, but secretly thinking that I'm the smart guy. And one of the things I learned at this park is that smart guys aren't that smart. Uh, and the, the, <laughs> one of the ways I learned it was, God, I think this was, was Mike, the big giant guy who was uh, a teddy bear, but also like 250 pounds of grizzly man who could crush you uh, between his fingers. Um, I think he started this and it was like, <sighs> try one of those things where you have to perform some trick with like, it's like a bar trick, right? So you have to take a stack of coins and balance it on your forehead and then take a funnel like a funnel from the garage and tuck it into your waistband and bounce the coins on your forehead, the stack of quarters or whatever, and get the stack of quarters to fall into the funnel in, in front of you. That's in your waistband. Right. right. Uh, and a couple of people tried it. It's not quite as easy as it looks. And I being the smart guy or I'm like, give me that. I can do it. Cause I'm, I'm good with quarters. Right. So I stack <laughs> the quarters up in my forehead, put the funnel in, lean back you can, you're picturing this right so i've got the quarters right in my forehead i've got to balance them so i'm basically facing the sky right, right? and that's the point where mike takes this cup of water and pours it into the funnel <laughs> while well, you're totally concentrating on yeah because you're looking up at the sky <laughs> right and everybody else in the circle he almost like singled you out he singled you out everybody else in the circle is in on this i'm the only person <laughs> as the new guy who does not know who does not know this gag right and i'm so excited to show all these these dunces that i can do this thing right and i was so pissed when that happened i took the funnel out of my waistband and threw it at mike who who like was laughing like a little like 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 a school child like he 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 and he cringed at like the, the act of picking up this funnel and throwing at him is the most insane thing you could ever do because he was always gruff and serious most of the time. And seriously, he looked like one of those big scary bikers who would just destroy you. But I was so pissed at myself, which I believe one of the other people actually said, like one of the older guys, you're just pissed at yourself because you were stupid and you thought you were smart. And you're like, you are 100% <laughs> Shut right. up. Stop telling me the truth. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, that thing works all the time. And I just, I, I, I savor the opportunities I have in life to be somewhere, especially on smart kids. To be somewhere where there's a funnel and you got a couple of quarters, it, people, it works all the time. And it is one of the best gags. And of course, then I got to go around the rest of the day with looking like I wet my pants, right? So that's that's the gag. That's that's uh, that's the, the tenor of the working relationship at South Haven County Park. 